This week on Geek Explained, in part one of our newest month-long series, Owen Farrington of the Owen Likes Comics YouTube channel drops by for a discussion on the best comics to check out for new readers of Marvel's Merry Mutants. Welcome to X-May. Welcome back to Geek Explained. I'm your host, Eric Azana, and today's episode is the first installment of X May. It is a month long series going all throughout the month of May where I'm talking exclusively about the X Men. Each week is going to tackle a different topic with a different excellent guest. I, I know you're really excited for me to go through all these X puns. Can't wait. We got a whole month of them. Oh boy. But today's episode is kind of, I think, the best best starting place for a series like this because this is kind of your crash course your intro to the x-men and when we're talking about x-men comics when we're talking about best entry points there's no one i would rather have talking about this than one of the best comic historians at least in my personal opinion and also an incredible member of the comic tube community owen from the owen likes comics youtube channel so we got a big discussion ahead talking about x-men comics for first-time readers of the x-men to check out if you're looking to get into their stories we also have a wonderful wildcard weekly review with my good brother malcolm russell nelson on the first season of invincible and of course rounding out as always we have this week's comic countdown but before we get into all of that let's check in with this week's news All right, guys and dolls, let's talk some news. We have our four categories, film, TV, comics, and miscellaneous. No comics news and no miscellaneous news this week, but that is A-OK because we've got plenty of film and TV news to talk about. Let's go ahead and dive first into TV news, some big, big, big TV news this week. First off, we got a trailer for the Netflix adaptation of Sweet Tooth by Jeff Lemire. And I'm going to I'm gonna be honest with you here. I'm going to level with you because I feel like we've cultivated a relationship and I can be honest like that I have never read Sweet Tooth I've gotten lots of recommendations on it I've heard nothing but good things and Jeff Lemire is an incredible creator so I think this trailer, if nothing else, has gotten me even more interested in reading the comics so before this show drops I'll definitely be reading the series but oh man this show looks cool it looks really really good for those of you who aren't familiar with it you're in the same boat with me, but it does seem to be some kind of post-apocalyptic story involving hybrids and antler people, so I'm very interested to see what they do with this. It looks great. It looks like they really put some budget into this, and it it's shaping up. You know, comic book adaptations are doing real well, and speaking of which, Invincible, which is going to be the... Um, 
the focus of our wildcard weekly review for this week just wrapped up its first season and already already they have dropped the news that they will be renewing the se- the show for a second and third season it's already under production hopefully fingers crossed we don't have to wait for like three years before the next season but robert kirkman is very excited about the show uh we'll get into the whole thing once we get into uh the weekly review segment but you know how much i loved this show i cannot wait for two more scenes seasons of this This is going to be great uh we also got two big pieces of dc and marvel news first off on the dc side of things titans i know I keep saying it, and every time that we talk about Titans in this news segment, it's something that's really exciting, but at the same time, it makes me frustrated, because it's Titans. It's still Titans. As excited as I can get about these things, it's still Titans at the end of the day, which makes me mad because we found out this past week that Vincent Kartheister, also known as our boy Pete Campbell from Mad Men, has been cast as Jonathan Crane the Scarecrow in Titans Season 3. That is pitch-perfect casting. I love that actor. He is phenomenal, and it's It is absolutely a dream casting to have him play Jonathan Crane, but at the same time, at the same time, it's still Titans, so I can't get excited about it until I watch it. They're making big moves with this show. They're making really, like, they're taking really big swings, and that's obvious. And all of the things that they are announcing for it, I'm excited about. But as the Titans show kind of shifts from Titans to uh, Batman family, you know, the Bat family extended universe show um it's it's harder and harder for me to kind of quantify how this is supposed to be a titans show and not just like a gotham universe show but i digress it's still a great casting i'll i'll be watching it i'm gonna put myself through it i already put myself through it once to watch through both season one and season two so if nothing else it'll be uh it'll be something that you can follow along as i live tweet again going through i did a whole live tweeting thing for the second season and it melted my brain so hopefully this will be less painful for me and then finally in tv news we have a pretty exciting piece of tv news uh which also essentially kind of blends into the film news for this week. We got our first look from some set leaks at the costume, the official costume for Kamala Khan, a.k.a. Miss Marvel. And you know what? Looks great. I'm just gonna... I know it's really easy to be cynical, and yes, there are things I would have changed about. I think it looks too high-tech, especially for a teenager. We don't know where she's getting the costume from. If it were me, I think they should have gone, you know, closer to the Avengers game costume. That game did not do a lot right, but they absolutely did Kamala's costume right, making it look a little bit more homemade. I think it's balanced out a tad bit with the converse. I think any... Any superhero costume that uses Converse is an instant win for me, but I 
even with my gripes, even with my nitpicking and whatnot, it looks great. And Miss Marvel's getting a live action adaptation that's going to be on Disney Plus and shown to millions of households across the world. I can't complain about that. It looks fantastic. She looks great in the suit. I'm very excited to see where this show goes. And that is going to kind of dovetail into our piece of film news. Really, only one big piece of film news this week, and that is that Marvel. I know, shocking, shocking, you know, talking about the last uh, piece of the TV news, dropped this great little sizzle reel for Phase 4, all the stuff that we can expect to see coming up. We got another look at Shang-Chi, we got another look at Black Widow, we got the title card for Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, but they also showed us some very exciting things that we weren't privy to before. First of all, the one that really, I think, kind of shocked the world was that Captain Marvel 2 is now going to be called The Marvels. So I'm very excited about this for a few reasons. First off, obviously, we know that Ms. Marvel is going to be in it. We know that Monica Rambeau is going to be in it. And it just makes sense. It makes sense that we're getting these two, these three Marvels kind of together in this film. The, uh, the logo utilizes a little bit of, you know, the... I don't know what it's supposed to be. It's it's usually like a lightning bolt, but they've very like a very much made it like into an S, like stylized it that way over the last few years. Uh, from Kamala's costume, they used the little. Um, I, I guess it's the symbol that she was using while she was uh, Captain Marvel, but I think it was also the symbol that she used while she was um, while she was Photon, but. That's on there. It also makes me excited because it kind of calls back to The Incredibles. It makes me really excited. It, it gives me that same feeling. And I know for a lot of people who are going to be kind of viewing this for the first time and, in, you know, getting into these characters for the first time, it might be of a similar, uh, a similar style. So that's a cool thing. And finally, Marvel's doesn't say, you know, the three Marvel's. So don't be cowards, Marvel. Give me... Adam Brashear, give me Blue Marvel, he is a Marvel, just do it. Just do it, make me happy for once. You, Marvel makes me happy all the time. But, like, this is, it's so easy. It's so easy. So just do that. I think if we get all four of them in, in the film, it'll be essentially uh, the Ultimates, which is all I could ask for. Very excited about this. We also got the uh, announcement during the sizzle reel that Black Panther 2 is officially going to be titled Black Panther Wakanda Forever. And in interviews since the sizzle reel dropped, they... Once again, kind of reiterated that the film is going to explore more of Wakanda as a culture, exploring more about this, the nation, exploring more about the people. So I'm very excited about that. Looking forward to it. We also got our first look, however brief, at Eternals, which it's Eternals. I mean, what? It's Eternals. Um, but it looks it looks fine. It's, you know, everyone looking very pretty. Kamel Nanjiani looking like the jacked guy who just fits in anywhere that he wants um but it looks great it, it looks exactly what you would expect a film directed by chloe zhao to look like it's great it looks awesome and then finally we got an official release date for guardians of the galaxy volume 3 rounding out the whole bunch we now know that volume 3 will be dropping may 5th of 2023 which is 
a while. It's a while away, but it's also two years from now this week. So all you need to do is wait for two more years, and we will meet back right here on this exact day and talk about how great Volume 3 is was and is so i'm very excited about that they did do another tease for fantastic four showing off that logo again but no uh news about it i don't expect us to get any like casting news or anything like that for a good long while they didn't even you know they're they're mapping things out to 2023 and they're like fantastic four doesn't even have a release date so i'm not expecting that until at least minimum 2024 so that's far off but i am still very excited for all the marvel goodness we're going to be getting We've got Loki ahead, we've got Black Widow ahead, we've got Shang-Chi ahead that I'm very excited about. We also have Eternals and as well we have Spider-Man No Way Home. I don't know if they're planning on releasing Hawkeye this year, but I would say if they don't release it this year, it will be very early next year, but we'll just have to see. A lot of Marvel goodness is coming our way, which I think we're owed since we had that big drought in 2020. I'm looking forward to it. All the stuff that Marvel has put out so far this year has been home runs in my book, so I'm very excited about this. But, speaking of Marvel, and speaking of properties that Marvel has, but it's going to be pretty far off until we get there, we are going to roll right on over to... Our main event for this episode, the main course, the entree, if you will, which is part one of X-May, which features our good brother and first-time guest on the podcast, Owen Farrington of the Owen Likes Comics YouTube channel, talking all about the best places to start when you want to get into X-Men comics. Let's dive into part one of X-May. Place to hide. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to X-May. This is the month-long series that is devoted to Marvel's Merry Mutants, and each week we are going to be tackling a different topic with a different excellent guest. See what I did? It, you get it. It's X-Men. Um, and for our first guest for our first week, this is going to kind of give you a crash course on the X-Men, give you what you need to know to get into the characters. If you've, if you've ever said, hey, I like those X-Men and I want to get into their comics. And for me, bringing in a guest who knows their stuff about X-Men, who has a vast library of X-Men videos on his personal YouTube channel. It has to be Owen Likes Comics. Owen, welcome to the show. I'm so happy to have you on. How are you doing? Hi, thanks for having me on. I feel like my my subtle um, subtle jabs at trying to get on the podcast for the past year have finally paid off. Yeah. This is a dream come true. <laughs> It's a dream come true for me too, because every, you know, every other day I get a message from Owen like, Hey, can I be on this week? And I'm like, no, sorry. It's not, it's not time yet. So yeah, I that's saved basically how our, that's basically how our entire friendship is, is gone for the past kind of however long it's been at this point. Yeah. yeah. It's just, it's exchanging messages of, is it time yet? And no, just back yeah, and forth. I, look, I just year. figured it's, 
it's kind of inevitable that you will run out of other guests at some point <laughs> and you'll be, it's like being the last kid picked in kind of PE or gym it's like eventually you're going to have to select me so which I guess is more or less um quite relevant for today's topic it's the x-men literally marvel's last kid picked in dodgeball for when it comes to outside of the comics and sometimes in the comics but uh for this episode owen i wanted to bring you on to talk about kind of an intro to x-men and for those of our listeners who aren't aware of you what your channel is can you give us a little breakdown of what you do on youtube yeah, so I am Owen. I host the YouTube channel Owen Likes Comics, where I make kind of uh, video essays and kind of short mini documentary style videos on the kind of real world and both fictional history of different comic book stories and characters. I'm assuming Eric's got me on because of the most recent video I did, where I dived into the history behind Grant Morrison's new X-Men series, talked about kind of what was going on in the post Claremont years in the 90s, and how Morrison kind of revolutionized and set kind of the modern precedent for what the X-Men would be. So that's probably a good summary of what I do. Kind of, I feel like that video sums up um, what you'd get from the from my channel. So uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, we're only kind of five minutes in and I'm already plugging myself. So that's, right. you know, I, I figured I've made you wait long enough. I, I at least got to give you the plug right, right up front. But honestly, like Owen's channel is fantastic. Like I know that some people like to uh, ask me questions on like comic book history, but if you want like a true like comic book historian, like Owen's your guy, he is his videos are some of my favorite that you can ask for when you're looking at both, like he said, fictional and real world uh, history. Some of the stuff that you've covered has been like ridiculous. Like there are so many stories in the comic book industry that I think a lot of people when they come to like mainstream comics aren't aware of and getting those stories from you is awesome. And I, that's one of the reasons I wanted to bring you on because today's episode is more or less talking about like introducing people to X-Men and when it comes to their comics, they have had a long history. They have been around for a very long time. They're one of the like first wave of the Marvel age as people call it. And you are the guy that I wanted to bring on to talk about like bringing people in and introducing them because you're able to take comic books and make them easy to understand even for some of the most ridiculous stuff no i i really appreciate that genuinely and i know you're not saying that just because i blackmailed you to let me on the podcast so no not not at all not and this is just i'll go ahead and put this out there just this disclaimer i am not doing this episode under duress i am doing this of my own free will and owen is not currently actually sitting in my apartment i don't know how he got hypothetically i wouldn't know how he got here but um yeah let's just uh let's just move on to the uh the episode so um first off owen how were you introduced to the x-men whether it's comics so, shows whatever yes yeah, so that, that's probably a good place to start i guess if we're gonna explain the best ways to get into x-men probably a good idea to talk about how we got into the characters I think for me, um, with all as is the same with a lot of different comic book characters, my exposure was really kind of the 90s animated shows. 
the kind of like I, I tell the same story whenever someone asks me how I get into Batman, it's Batman the animated series. Right. Or if someone asks me how I get into Spider-Man, it's Spider-Man the animated series. Uh, and I think the same rings true for X-Men. I, I remember watching um the X-Men animated series a lot as a kid. It was always kind of on it just seemed to constantly rerun and just constantly be on air. And the kind of serialized nature of that show meant it, it didn't really matter what season you they'd kind of just thrown on what episode you could kind of just watch that show on and on and on and, and really enjoy it and i think the great thing about that show is because like not only is it kind of a fun cartoon for all ages it's also a show that's like really accurate to the comic books of the time you know both kind of um the stuff that was going on with the x-men in kind of the mid 90s but then also a lot of the kind of popular chris claremont stories from the 80s as well you know, introducing like the Hellfire Club and the Phoenix Saga and Age yeah. of Apocalypse and all these different stories. It was kind of a great distillation of like the X-Men's entire history presented in this kind of digestible 22 minute long show. And for me, that kind of set something in me. Where I was like, these characters are really cool. And then a few years later, obviously, you've got the live action movies with Patrick Stewart, Hugh Jackman. Um, I think the first two of those are up there with any of the Marvel movies, honestly, I think the first two X-Men films are great. And between those and then kind of getting into the X-Men comics around the time of those films coming out, specifically the kind of Morrison run in the like early 2000s, and then the Weed and John Cassidy run really after that. Um, it was kind of like a combination of those three things, the animated shows, the live action films, and that kind of one-two punch of new X-Men and astonishing X-Men that really kind of hooked me in and, and made the X-Men kind of one of my favorite of superhero teams really yeah man honestly like it's for a lot of people like myself included like it's the x-men were introduced to uh to me through animated form i kind of mentioned this to owen off mic but my introduction to the x-men was actually the pride of the x-men uh cartoon pilot and uh, for those of you who aren't aware, the Pride of the X-Men was the uh, one true X-Men animated series that on Earth 2 is alive and well and is the only X-Men animated series with the greatest theme song of all time. Um, but I remember just absolutely being enthralled by just the world, the characters. And of course, when I did end up going into the uh the 90s animated series and like you said it really does kind of distill everything about the x-men and they pull different things i remember actually going back like after you know when i got older and started actually like really getting into the comics being kind of amazed at how much i did know about them thanks yeah. to the animated series yeah same here it's it's weird because obviously like having watched the show even from like a fairly young age and kind of absorbing all of this kind of information and context about the characters. When I kind of did go back and read some of the earlier X-Men stories, specifically kind of like the 70s, 80s Claremont run, being like, I didn't realize how much of these kind of stories and these kind of concepts I was already somewhat familiar with. It, it, it is great. And it's funny because, you know, the kind of, you don't expect that from a an animated show on Fox Kids. You just expect yeah. it to just be a, a fun kind of superhero show, but it's it's made with such kind of reverence and love for the source material, and specifically that kind of 80s and early 90s period of the X-Men's history, that it is kind of the perfect crash course for anyone that wants to get into um, kind of reading the X-Men comics. 
Yeah, and it's it's kind of wild because you wouldn't expect that at a time that because when this when that show came out like we we weren't in this like golden age of like comic book media that we kind of are right now where like everyone knows what the infinity gauntlet is or like everybody knows who dark side is like it's it's crazy how much it's kind of exploded over the past like i would say two decades i guess you could yeah like it's very recent and it's kind of wild looking back on it like this is you know being a fan of like superheroes and being a nerd like would get me like beat up when i was a kid and now it's just like oh man like what's this deal with like who's beta ray bill and i'm like oh this is amazing <laughs> so when it comes to the comics though i wanted to kind of give a couple ideas because again uh owns a longtime comic book reader i'm a longtime comic book reader and if you are interested in getting into the comics there are a few different points throughout their history that i think are worth checking out if you want to like start reading at a certain point and kind of move forward um i have a couple owen has a couple here as well i will kick things off just to kind of give us a sense of like what we're doing the format we're looking at so the first one that i have is actually uh, a single issue it is uncanny x-men number 139 now this is a throwback this is if you wanted to kind of get into uh the x-men in more of their like classic state their iconic distilled state uh uncanny 139 is the exact next issue after the conclusion of the dark phoenix saga now i know that sounds strange for people who are like oh but like the dark phoenix saga is like the most iconic x-men story but for me x uncanny x-men 139 is so fun because this is really the issue that uh gets us introduced to kitty pride there's a changing of the guard the last issue before this cyclops has left the x-men following the death of gene gray uh storm is now heading up the x-men kind of leading the team and the whole idea behind kitty pride was to give us or to give younger readers a new uh character to really like dive into the series with and then you know grow up with and that's something that i've always really enjoyed about kitty pride as a character and the same with jubilee later on as like this you know eyes of the audience into this weird world that is the x-men and you've still got like a lot of iconic stories ahead of you coming into this i mean the next issue after this or it might be two issues later is days of future past like that's very early on in this run and like you still have your iconic claremont and burn team where they are kind of at the height of their x-men storytelling prowess like they just finished off telling this huge story and they're starting to make their way into like what's next and they have something to prove and it shows so i think that it's Again, if you want to get into the comics kind of at an earlier point and kind of read through up till today, that's one of my that's one of my places that I would absolutely recommend to start off. Um, what do you think? Do you do you know about or of course, you know about it, but like what's your kind of view on that era of the X-Men? You know what? It's funny because we were talking off mic earlier um, saying that because we haven't kind of shared notes on our respective lists and choices for recommendations. And I was quite worried about kind of showing up and you already having the same ones as me. But I, I genuinely wouldn't have thought about that. But kind of as you were talking about the issue and I was kind of remembering it, it's like that's such a great choice because like you said, 
a lot of, especially kind of the second half of the Clement Byrne run, really is built around Kitty Pride as kind of the point of view character. And you're kind of lead into like this weird and wonderful world of the X-Men. Like you said, with Dark Phoenix wrapping up immediately before it, it is kind of like a, a subtle kind of reset of the status quo. Right. And there are a few interesting things in that issue. Like, I, if I remember correctly, I think it's the first time that, like, Wolverine's real name is said. Yes. That's when he's called I think, Logan like, for the first time. Yeah. I think, like, it's kind of also, like, a prelude to, like, the beginning of Alpha Flight as well. I, I'm pretty sure kind of, like, Wendigo shows up in that issue and a couple of other characters that show up in the first issue of Alpha Flight as well. Yeah. Like, and then, obviously, you've got the thing where, like, Storm becomes kind of the new leader of the X-Men. It really does kind of set up in new kind of status quo throughout Claremont's run. And that probably is, if you, especially if you want to read like that kind of, um, that Claremont burn period that so many perceive as like the ultimate kind of era of the X-Men. Right. Unless you're starting at like kind of the beginning of that run. And like, it's a, you know, it's a nearly a two decade run. It's a, it's a huge chunk of, of kind of literature to get through. Unless you kind of start at the beginning. 139 is probably as good a place as ever to kind of jump into it. Well, and it's kind of wild because you don't think about like, we don't really get two decade long runs anymore. There's like, creators are lucky to get six months out of their book before they have to like turn it over to a new creative team nowadays. And so being able to really put your stamp and get your, um, your version of these characters it's like it's the reason that people look at those long-standing runs like the snyder capullo batman the jason aaron thor like that's there's a reason those stick out because the that creative team got to run with these characters for so long and this for me was one of the most exciting points of that run because you don't know where they're gonna go next they just went out into space they dealt with this you know cosmic firebird that is like how do you get bigger than that? And what they did was they decided to go the other direction and get a little bit more, more intimate, explore the characters more and like start to think about what they could do with the characters that they have and put it through that new lens, like you said, of Kitty Pride. So I just, I, I love that era. It's really, cause plus it also has the best Wolverine costume as well. So I'm a, I'm a, I'm a big fan of it for sure. So, Owen, what is your first first intro to X-Men story? Okay, so all all of my choices are still on the board here, so I've kind of got the pick. Oh, I love the, that. Pick of the bunch. So I think I'm, I'm going to start with probably the most obvious one, given it's the most recent in my brain, and that is New X-Men issue 114 yeah, uh, from 2001. So to give a bit of context in this, um, in 2001, Marvel hired Grant Morrison to take over the X-Men. And basically, throughout the last kind of five years, the X-Men books had been spinning their wheels. Claremont left in 92. Uh, Scott Lobdell and Fabian Nichezza took over and kind of did a lot of, like, the big event books of the 90s, stuff like Age of Apocalypse, Fatal Attraction, Onslaught. And, like, between, like, 92 and, say, 96, the X-Men were doing really, really well. That's kind of the period where you've also got the animated show being really popular. Like, that is kind of, like, a real height for the X-Men in, in kind of the period. But in kind of 97 and onwards, when you got Marvel's kind of own financial issues, the X-Men books take a slump. And by 2000, they're kind of really in a bad situation. And in 2000, they try and bring Chris Claremont back. And he does this kind of soft relaunch called Revolution that doesn't really work. And Marvel editorial kind of end up in a position where they need to like 
kind of scorch earth and start the X-Men again. Um, in the video I talked, in the Morrison Run video I recently made, I talk about how they realized they didn't need Chris Claremont to come back. They needed kind of the modern day Chris Claremont when Claremont came in in 1975 and kind of revolutionized what uh, Lee and Kirby's X-Men had been. They kind of needed someone to do the same then. And Morrison had just finished up um, writing JLA where they would kind of took over the Justice League and kind of took it from the JL International period. Where it was a lot of kind of lifting up a lot of B-level heroes and kind of brought it back to being kind of like the all-star team of the DC universe. And in Morrison's JLA run is really critically acclaimed. It's a great series. And Marvel basically said, can you do the same for X-Men? So X-Men 114 is the first issue of the Morrison X-Men run. Um, despite the fact it's called issue 114, it really should be issue one because they even changed the name of the book. Morrison renames the comic from X-Men to New X-Men. And, you know, I, I, was, I was reading kind of the late... Um, pre-Morrison comics and then jumping into this and seeing kind of how much the writer kind of carried over from the previous stories barely any at all to be honest it's kind of like bad just bad and you can <laughs> yeah but it's kind of like I think Morrison even admitted like they weren't reading a lot of what the X-Men were doing before they wanted to come in and tell their own story from scratch and if the first page of new X-Men issue 114 doesn't get you on board I don't think anything will because it's this beautiful um splash page that Frank quietly draws of kind of Cyclops and Wolverine destroying the Sentinel Cyclops is on the ground level um shooting it in the head with the optic beams and then you can see one uh, you can see Wolverine at the top kind of slashing away at its back and it's this kind of super familiar image. Like you've seen the X-Men tear apart Sentinel a hundred times before, but then you start to kind of look closer at the image and you realize Wolverine isn't in his traditional costume. He doesn't have the headpiece on. He doesn't have the yellow and blue. He's in like this sleek black and yellow uniform. And so is Cyclops. Cyclops is wearing trainers. Like when have you seen the X-Men wear trainers? And then you see like underneath the Sentinel, there's kind of like a mutant hiding but it's not like any, it's not like a human looking view. It's this kind of weird, almost alien looking creature. And I think that image perfectly distills everything about Morrison's run. It takes these kind of archetypes and this kind of imagery that X-Men fans are familiar with and just completely turns them inside out. You know, the X-Men have, have gone from being this kind of super, this kind of friendly superhero team. Now they're more of like an elite mutant black ops team with like Cyclops isn't like a superhero name. It's a code name. And like the one of my favorite things about the Morrison run is how he kind of how the writer kind of advances the, the myth and the status of mutants, because I don't think it's a secret to say that, like from the Stan Lee run and then into Claremont's run, the X-Men kind of paralleled like civil rights movements and the kind of yeah. their prejudices and the experiences of African-Americans at the time. And while that doesn't become any less relevant as time goes on, I, I think Morrison kind of felt that like the metaphor hadn't really evolved with the times. So, you know, when they, when they come into the book and they kind of revolutionize the X-Men, they revolutionized the mutants place in the Marvel universe as well. So like, they introduced this idea of mutant subcultures, kind of mutant music. And there's a whole district of New York that's just solely mutant um, and like mutant celebrities and deals with a lot of issues of kind of like cultural appropriation and like a lot of kind of modern issues that minority groups today have to face. And 
I, I just think, it, I think it's a genius run in like uh, X-Men 114 not only kind of sets up like this is the new X-Men team. It's, it's kind of a more stripped down lineup than you might expect. It's just Charles Xavier, Cyclops, Wolverine, Beast, Jean Grey and Emma Frost. And then it introduces a brand new villain in Cassandra Nova, someone we've never seen before. We find out that she's kind of like a weird, long lost alien twin to Charles Xavier. And then it, it goes into like, I think the, the first issue ends with the reveal of her finding this kind of giant sentinel factory uh, in the middle of the jungle somewhere. And it leads into like one of the most um, monumental and consequential moments in the X-Men's history, which is the genocide of Genosha. 16 million mutants are wiped out completely off the bat in Morrison's run. And pretty much for the next three years of, of that series, that is such a huge thing that informs the rest of the story. It's the consequences of, of what happens there. Not only informs the rest of the new X-Men series, but as I'll probably kind of touch on with one of my next suggestions, it's something that still informs the X-Men today. And I think it's that long-term impact and significance that makes the Grant Morrison X-Men one of my favourite um, periods in the team's history. And I think in terms of just how it comes in so brazenly and kind of unwaveringly, just as an, it's as close to a reboot as you're ever going to get in the main Marvel universe. Because Marvel don't, in the same way that DC like to reboot every five years, Marvel are very hesitant on doing like a full hard reboot. Yeah. Morrison kind of comes in and just goes, right, this is the X-Men, forget, unless I kind of directly reference it, forget everything you've read, let's go from here. And to some people that were kind of, maybe had read X-Men consistently, they might not have liked that. But if you're kind of looking to get into the title, looking to get into reading uh, more of like a modern X-Men, that's the book that kind of really informs the X-Men as they are in the 21st century, both in terms of the comics, you know, it, it informs a lot of what the current X-Men stuff is doing, but it also informs the way that the X-Men films are pulling from. Like the, the original kind of Brian Singer X-Men films are take a lot of kind of visual inspiration from the Morrison run. Um, the X-Men Evolution animated series, which I'd also recommend checking out. So it is kind of, because it's in the shadow of the, the 90s series, it's kind of forgotten about, but it's a really good show. That as well borrows a lot from new X-Men. And I think, like I said, if you want to get into the modern kind of iteration of the team, that is a great starting point. And it's, and it's so good. Yeah, man. It's honestly the... The Morrison X-Men run is iconic for a reason. There's a reason that people hold it so highly. They revere it so much because it's a, it's not just a great starting point for uh, new fans of the X-Men. It's just a great book. Like, mm -hmm. Grant took the time. They really decided, like, we're going to scorch Earth everything, like, sometimes literally when it comes to Genosha. And, like, we're going to, like, move forward. And that... When you broke down that first page, like, I still, it blows my mind the way that you, like, pinpoint everything on it and why it represents, like, this immediate, like, left turn for the X-Men. Because they even, like, the first speech bubble in this whole run is just Cyclops going, like, yeah, you can stop that now. Like, exactly. it's, it's basically like, hey, like, like all this stuff, we're, we're going the other direction. Exactly. It's kind of like, Morrison giving one page to kind of like say goodbye <laughs> to the old, uh, the old X-Men. It's like this kind of really familiar image of Wolverine slashing away on a sentinel. And it's Cyclops saying, okay, you've done it. 
let's move on. Let's do something else. And it is kind of a great microcosm for what that entire series turns into. Yeah. And like you said, it really does inform almost everything that we know in the modern X-Men, both with like narrative and with characters as well. Like this was kind of coming off um, the whole Apocalypse the 12 storyline where you know cyclops gets possessed and like so he's dealing with that this was the uh story that kind of gave us another um i would say like the first like real modern take on the phoenix and really kind of gave us that whole like phoenix end song storyline gave us wolverine as the like elder statesman at the school like it's i'm rereading it right now but it's like that's that's one of the other things i love about that that's one of the other things i love about that run is it kind of always been a concept, but it never kind of been explored the extent it was in Morrison's run, which is that the Xavier Institute is a school. And like, maybe as someone coming into the X-Men from the films, you'd kind of be like, yeah, of course it is. But like, it had always been where the, like Xavier had trained his students, the X-Men. But it's in the Morrison run that they really focus on, no, this is like an actual boarding school that, mutant kids go to and don't just learn to kind of use their powers they learn math and science and geography and like actual subjects and it is it's putting characters like wolverine and beast and cyclops and emma frost and gene in that kind of almost like parental role it's like i said they're not the students anymore they really are kind of the teachers of other students as well and it's it is that kind of like the idea of evolution and kind of pushing the the mythos on forward but I just think that's it's a great time in the X-Men's history and a perfect jumping on point for anyone that wants to get into it. For sure. And I am going to add to my list. I'm going to pencil this in on here because Owen Owen came stacked. He came, you know, armed to the to the absolute hilt with picks. So I'm just going to write this one in here because it's a now that we've kind of mentioned new X-Men that we, that we've mentioned the Grant Morrison run, I do want to talk about one of my favorite runs, which I don't think a whole lot of people talk about, which is the Astonishing Run. One of my personal favorites. It is, I think, one of the most, again, distilled X-Men runs, and it's unfortunate that it was made by a terrible person. Um, What's wrong with John Cassidy? Oh, you're right. Absolutely. It was was written and illustrated by John Cassidy. You're right um it's it's doing more or less what grant morrison did but on a very micro level basically saying okay we've got you know grant they made all they really expanded their you know their reach of what being a mutant meant you know owen brought it up like the idea of mutant culture cultural appropriation with the um what was it uh sublime and all the you know stuff that went on with that cassandra nova with astonishing x-men they decided we're going to make where morrison made a left turn we're going to make a right turn and we're going to see what happens next after these characters have been really kind of brought down into a more um street level i don't want to say paramilitary you know style but very much like a more grounded take and approach on yeah. the X-Men. You can, you can definitely say that Astonishing is more of a kind of back to basics. The X-Men as superheroes again. Yeah. I and, think that's that's fair. And they 
make that very clear in the first issue where everyone's back mm. in costumes like this yeah. is and some of those costumes are my like that is my that was my favorite cyclops look up until his house of x powers of 10 look i think that's so like it's perfect but like bringing back you know in the same way that uncanny 139 did the first issue opens up with kitty pride showing back up at the at xavier's mansion and like getting herself back into this world and we're reeling from the events of the grant morrison run everything that happened there with zorn with gene you know Emma Frost becoming headmistress, essentially. Like, it was a strange time. You know, Xavier's exiled, essentially, from, you know, from the X-Men. And we are dealing with some of the fallout from the uh, Morrison run, but we're also, once again, kind of expanding outwards. Most of this run takes place in space, which I love. Anytime that the X-Men go into space, Eric's a happy boy. So, like, I love the love the attention to detail i love bringing back colossus after a huge spoiler alert i guess uh bringing back colossus after the events of you know the legacy virus it's something that i um that i always come back to when it comes to the x-men because it really like owen said like they are heroes and they are presented as such but in that way they are also heroes in the world that new x-men presented so they are trying to be heroes and at every turn they're like what are you guys doing here they're like we're heroes and they're like no you're mutants and like the juxtaposition the conversation that the x-men have with the fantastic four after they deal with this like giant creature attacking new york will never not make me laugh like uh thing has this killer line where he's just like i thought they came up with a cure for your kind and wolverine's like you hate mutants he's like i meant canadians and just like it's so pure like ben Grimm logan like conversation and the as a cyclops fan this is the run for you because cyclops gets so much to work with um there is a certain point where his powers get shut off and then you find out that oh wait no he he has been like consciously or subconsciously making the effort to not control it it's an incredibly character focused run which i love um once again you know with the uh with the characters making certain choices bringing in you know more space and more i would say like more fantastical aspects we do get a return of of uh cat cassandra nova i don't know why i just i just had a aneurysm um it was really interesting to see the change over from new x-men into astonishing and kind of see where they go from there and i think if you're looking for like um just true blue x-men trying to be heroes like this is a great starting point for sure yeah i'd agree with that to be honest astonishing was on my list so we we can show that one okay um but i i I'm probably slightly more mixed on Astonishing than you are, but I'd agree that it's a great jumping on point because like, like we talked about Morrison's X-Men is a great run and it's, it starts in a way that really hooks you in. If you're not on board with new X-Men by the end of issue 114, it's probably not for you just because (laughs) the, the first issue is a great distillation of what the entire kind of three year run is. But uh, Astonishing X-Men is more of a kind of true to form 
period in the X-Men's history, it does in some ways kind of scale back on some of the more kind of super modern aspects of what Morrison does to the characters and brings it, it kind of melds some of the more um, kind of modern ideas of the, the ideas of what mutants are in the Marvel universe. It retains those, but also kind of brings back a lot of the uh, iconography and a lot of the style of the Claremont stories in a way. And it is kind of like a melding of the two. What I will say is, I, the first X-Men comics I read were the tail end of the Morrison era, but I think I was really, at the time, too young to properly appreciate what I was reading. Um, and it's only kind of going back years later, having become a, a massive Grant Morrison fan, that I can really appreciate how genius that run is. But I remember, like, the first X-Men comics that really hooked me in were kind of that like that first six issues of Astonishing X-Men. And I will say, like, you touched on it briefly, but John Cassidy is my favorite X-Men artist, bar none. Agreed. And it's, his art is beautiful in that series. It's my favorite looking Wolverine. It's my favorite looking Cyclops. I can even forgive Cat Beast, which I'm not huge on, because John Cassidy draws it in such a great way. Yeah, we'll we'll have to agree to disagree on Cat Beast, because I, I, I love me some Cat Beast. I also, but my taste is also very, um, I would say, uh, off because i also like sasquatch beast from the 2010s and that's objectively a bad look for him i love that look and i know it's a bad look for him it's like i've made it clear kind of modern x-men morrison kind of pushing the x-men forward is my jam but when it comes to beast i am very much a traditionalist yeah. i i like big blue furry x-men the animated series beast Fair. um Kelsey Grammer's Beast in X-Men 3. If it doesn't look like that, not interested. I'm sorry. But yeah, Astonishing <laughs> X-Men, what I will say, because you have, when you talk about Astonishing, you have to address the elephant in the room, which is the fact that it's written by Joss Whedon. Yeah. Who, yeah, we, we're not going to get into it. No. But yeah. But what I will say, there's a part of the fact it's written by Whedon that makes it a good jumping on point for people that have kind of that are coming into it from stuff like the MCU, because a lot of the, even in the kind of post weed and MCU films, obviously he did the first two Avengers films, then left a lot of like, especially the kind of character interactions, that kind of quippy nature that dominates the way that characters interact in the Marvel cinematic universe, even still that's all over astonishing X-Men. So the dialogue and kind of the way that the characters progress throughout the story, it's probably going to feel quite familiar to someone that's really into the Marvel Cinematic Universe and into the films. I think that obviously you have to separate the art from the artist to an extent. Um, but I think there are, there's a part of that, a part of the fact that the writer was working on both Marvel movies and the Marvel comics that makes that quite an accessible way to jump into the, the storyline. And I think that as far as kind of jumping on points go, the first issue of Astonishing is a really, really great issue because it it's literally the X-Men meeting up um, in the danger room and being kind of like, right, we need to repair our image. Yeah. We're being superheroes again. We're all putting the costumes back on. We're not a black ops military team. We're superheroes and we need to go out and save people in public and repair our image. And it is kind of like, it, like I said, it, it doesn't throw away what Morrison had done, but it kind of, to me, it kind of scales it back a little and brings in a lot of the more kind of familiar aspects from the, the Claremont run and the animated series. And it is like an interesting melding of the two 
uh, in a lot of ways, very different versions of the team. So um, it's, it's a run I actually want to revisit because, like I said, I've I've just finished reading the entirety of Morrison's X Men for a, for a video I've recently made, and there is part of me that kind of, cause like I said, Astonishing was my gateway into reading X Men, but then it's not something I I don't even think I finished it because one of the problems with John Cassidy on artist in that series is that it was delayed quite a bit when it was coming out. Yeah. And I, I think there was a point where it kind of, I just dropped off and kind of stopped reading it and never went back to it. Um, yeah. And I, then... I recently reread the whole thing and it is again, like if you are, if you were collecting it week to week, like, or yeah. month to month or by yearly at near the end there, like it was, it was tough, but it is a, it's a run that I really enjoy. It's a run that like Owen very eloquently said, like kind of puts together all of the essentials of previous eras and, you know, regardless of the, uh, the creative behind it is a solid X-Men story and really yeah. does kind of set the stage for the things that come next for it. So Owen, what is your your second pick now that I've stolen one from you officially? My second pick, I, I think I'm going to stick with the modern um, just because what I'm going to say leads on to my previous one. And I, I know I'm definitely stealing an answer from you. And it's one we've briefly mentioned already on this podcast. And that is House of X. I am going to say, I knew you were going to pick it. Wasn't on okay. my list. So, okay. So, but I'm very excited for you to talk about it. So yeah, so my history and relationship with the X-Men comics is very interesting. Um, like I said, I, I, I got into reading the comics through the Astonishing run, dropped off that because of um, some of the delays with issues and just kind of, you know, I, I, I'll just read Ultimate Spider-Man instead for the <laughs> rest of my life. Um, and then a lot of the stuff that happens in the Marvel Universe in the mid-2000s happens, which isn't particularly kind to the Merry Mutants. You have House of M, which is one of my favorite Marvel event books ever. I think it's a great story. It's the height of what I consider like Bendis's golden age of Marvel. Yeah. Um, but that ends in a way that's not particularly kind for the X-Men. Like I said, in, in the start of Morrison's run, you kill off 16 million mutants. And then at the end of House of M, only four years later, they reduce the remaining population down to like 0.1%. And the majority of mutants in the world kind of lose their abilities. And then you have decimation. <laughs> and then you, you enter the period of kind of Marvel, which I call the, uh, kind of the best way to describe it. You enter a period in which Marvel editorial wants to focus on characters that they can make movies on. Yeah. And I think the biggest casualties in that period probably are the X-Men. I know the Fantastic Four got the book cancelled, but they also got a really great Jonathan Hickman run leading up to it. Yeah, they did. Whereas the X-Men really go through the ringer in kind of like the late 2000s and the early 2010s. The mansion gets blown up. You have Avengers versus X-Men where Charles Xavier gets killed and Cyclops turns evil and kills him. And then they kill off Wolverine um, soon after. And then you have the story where they bring the young X-Men team from the 60s into the present day and that was really and I'm sure there are people listening to this that really enjoy that period of, of X-Men but for me I, I really kind of dropped off reading X-Men after Decimation and um, 
you know, especially after Avengers versus X-Men, I really felt that it had moved quite far away from the version of the team that I kind of fell in love with and I wanted to read. And so I kind of just gave up hope on um, X-Men comics. Fortunately, Avengers comics at that time were pretty good and they were being written by a, uh, a writer called Jonathan Hickman, who was telling this epic, sprawling story leading into uh, the 2015 Secret Wars series, which, um, to completely contradict everything I said about House of M, might be the other best Marvel Comics event of the last 20 years. Yeah. You, Hickman's you'd be hard-pressed to have someone like disagree with you on that, I think. Yeah. like Hickman is one of the best writers working in comics today. I don't think that's hyperbole to say. They're so meticulous and thought out with their storytelling. Like they, they, you know, we talked about uh, Claremont, like 17 years on the X-Men. If there's any other person that could do that on a run today, it's probably Jonathan Hickman. Like yeah. they were right. Like, wasn't there a, like Avengers run like nearly like seven years in total? Yeah, it was a and long, because like, it had like two other, you know, X-Men or uh, X-Men Avengers. Avengers books going on at the same time. And he was just exactly. more or less fresh off of that Fantastic Four run. Yeah. And that's it. It's like, and it's not even like the Avengers story starts there because the whole idea of incursions, which leads into time runs out and eventually into Secret Wars is like teased in like the original issues of Hickman's Fantastic Four one. Yeah. It's like a decade long epic that coalesces in like the complete destruction and rebuilding of the Marvel universe in Secret Wars, which we're, we're, we are kind of getting off track, but just to set <laughs> the scene. So um, in, I think it was, was it the end of 2019 that Hickman was announced to be taking over X-Men? Yeah. It was late 2019. It was announced that Jonathan Hickman was, coming in and was going to take over as the lead creative writer on X-Men. And, and as someone like said that it kind of fell out in, out of love with the characters and with, with the series, and it wasn't something I was reading regularly anymore. That made me so excited because to me, I, I kind of view Hickman in a very similar way to how I view Morrison and Claremont's run um, right. in the same way that kind of Claremont had inherited the X-Men um, after they'd kind of been in and out of cancellation. Um, after the original kind of Stanley Jack Kirby series. And then like completely, I, I would argue Claremont's name should be there alongside Lee and Kirby oh, as like sure. the main creators of the X-Men. Yeah. Um, but then you have kind of the post Claremont years where the team kind of loses its identity and loses its way a little bit. And then Morrison comes in and again, like pushes it forward and revolutionizes it. Then you have a very similar situation where Marvel kind of deprioritized the X-Men and deprioritized mutants in the Marvel universe, kill off a lot of the key characters and change a lot of the key characters. And the X-Men are left in a, in a place where they're not as familiar as you might expect. So then Hickman comes in and this is starting to sound very familiar, but pushes the mythos forward probably even more than the other two. Um, and like yeah, I said, I, when, I when agree. There, there's a reason I think why in, cause I just reread, Foxbox, and there is a reason why like they call it the lost decade in that book yeah. is like that whole time is just it's fraught with just terrible decisions and like not great treatment of these characters and like well that's it it's it's kind of like there's there's mentions and like different references to the x-men's history throughout Foxbox, but it's kind of like it stops with genosha with the in, with the destruction of Genosha and the genocide of 60 million mutants. 
that's kind of like the most recent thing that Hickman wants you to have in your head that's informing the decisions the characters are made in this period. So they are, I, I kind of consider the two of these runs, New X-Men and House of X and the, the ensuing series, kind of like companion pieces in a lot of ways. Um, both in kind of what was going on editorially around the time and just how they kind of changed the X-Men up to fit kind of the modern day. So yeah, setting the scene, I wasn't reading X-Men that much at the time that this was starting to come out, but being a huge fan of what Hickman had done on the Avengers and being a huge X-Men fan, I was so excited to jump into House of X and to kind of break the fourth wall a little bit. I don't read that many comics issue to issue anymore. I am more of someone what? that kind of just reads by trade i what? know owen likes comics doesn't read comics i do i just like to read the whole story at once <laughs> um but i i read a lot of books by kind of trade paperback at this point yeah um but i i made a genuine exception to read every single issue of house of x and powers of ten as it was coming out and it is a complete reinvention of the X-Men mythos. You know, like how the first page of Morrison's X-Men just sets the scene perfectly. The first words you hear on uh, Hickman's House of X issue one is, while you slept, the world changed. It, so good. it doesn't, you can't summarize a revolution, like a creative just resurgence quite like that. You know, you, you start House of X issue one having no idea what's going on. It's this, this shot of Charles Xavier. He looks like the maker from Ultimate Fantastic Four. He's, he's stood upright and walking, and he's got this giant kind of Cerebro helmet on his head. And all of the X-Men are like emerging from like these gooey pods, looking like they've just been unplugged from the Matrix. It's this really sinister-looking shot, and there's just a one line of dialogue from Xavier saying, to me, my X-Men. It's like, what is going on here? Is this like an evil clone of Xavier growing their own X-Men? You know, is this kind of in the future? What's going on here? And then you get into you get into the first issue of House of X and you learn this, this brand new status quo that Hickman just launches onto you and just tells you. It, it doesn't kind of bleed into it from what the previous series was doing. It's just, no, this is where the X-Men are now. The X-Men now live on the sentient mutant island of Krakoa. It's crazy, it's wild, but you're going to have to get on board with it. After the destruction of Genosha and after everything the X-Men have been through, Charles Xavier has realised that in order for humans and mutants to both live peacefully, they can't necessarily live together. And so the world's mutant population is moving to Krakoa. They're going to develop their own culture, their own society, their own language, kind of a lot in a lot of ways furthering the kind of stuff Morrison wanted to do. And it's this kind of thing where it's like Xavier takes more of a stance similar to Magneto, where it is that kind of, well, if you really want to fight us and you really want to push back against us doing this, we are the evolutionary next step. So it's only going to, there's only going to be one victor in this war. So if you want to, it basically to humans, if you want to keep surviving, you're going to let us basically form our own sovereign nation and govern ourselves. And it's just this great, because at first you're like, this is uncharacteristic of Charles Xavier. This isn't the Chuck I know. And then as the, these 12 issues, because there's the six issues of House of X and the six issues of Powers of 10 and the release kind of within each other once a week for 12 weeks. And 
as Hickman slowly peels back, what's happened to the status quo when you learn um, the retcon that Hickman does to Moira McTaggart and kind of makes her the most important character in the X-Men universe with this revelation that she's a mutant and she's essentially like reincarnates herself over and over again. And she's seen what happens to mutants throughout these different lifetimes and it always ends the same that the mutant race is destroyed and wiped out by humans and by AI and by technology, that Charles Xavier, having learned all this, is left with no option other than to essentially move to Krakoa and safeguard the mutant population by essentially isolating itself and becoming a superpower. Um, I've recently, uh, I literally today, the trade paperback of Dawn of X arrived and I was reading the blurb of that earlier and it talks about how Charles Xavier realizes he can't just hope for peace within human society for mutants. Now mutants have to be at the humanity's level at their own games. And it's such a, it's such a fascinating twist on the premise. And it's difficult to talk about in the same way that stuff like um, Morrison's run and, and Whedon's run is because it's still ongoing and we don't know what the end goal of, of, um, Hickman's X-Men run is like we said with his Avengers and his Fantastic Four run there could be another seven eight years of um, of this storyline so I guess if you want to jump on with current X-Men see what all the hype's about and why people are so excited about the future of X-Men for the first time in so long that kind of first issue of House of X and then going into the Hoxpox run is genuinely such it's such a great place to jump on because you don't have to know anything it just throws you right in and just catches you up as those 12 issues go along. And it's also kind of the start of what could be, fingers crossed, a real new golden age for the X-Men. Yeah, I absolutely agree with literally everything you said. Like, it's it's crazy how much having Hickman take the time to really like you said, essentially do what Morrison did when they rebooted the X-Men. Like these, I love the way that Hawksbox opens up because you have literally no clue what's happening. And the the shout about uh, Xavier looking just like the maker, like it, all of those thoughts are going through your head if you know what's well, that's going it. on. My, my theory when that first issue came out is that it was the maker. Yeah. Knowing that that's a character that Jonathan Hickman created, and he in loves. the kind of Ultimates run and Ultimate Fantastic Four run, and then it brought them over and the maker was a big part of Secret Wars. I thought that's obviously where they're going, but then it's this genius misdirect into this kind of new, this new form of Charles Xavier based off all of the kind of the things he's learned from Moira and this new kind of almost radicalized state that he's in. It's genius. Well, and they also, they make a, they make a comment in one of the, um, I want to say it's one of the Power of Ten issues where uh, they're recruiting Emma Frost. And she's like, oh, good. We're going to stick all the mutants on an island again. And that worked so well last time. Yeah. And not not only is it, you know, kind of, like you said, kind of throwing away everything that you know about the X-Men, but it's also building on that history in the same way that Morrison's run did. Like, it's taking all of these things and recontextualizing them. Like, I remember reading that issue where it was revealed, you know, the lives of Moira X, and just blew my mind because it's like nothing like that had been attempted before when it comes to the X-Men and 
bringing them into this new status quo with dawn of x you know ten of swords having just wrapped up and us like moving into this reign of x era i mean this past week as we're recording this they dropped way of x which was just a fantastic fantastic issue with uh with nightcrawler and this new status quo of the x-men being like essentially a new world superpower is incredible and it's something that again we haven't seen before and with hickman being such a big fan of long form storytelling we are going to be talking about this run of the x-men for a good long time to come so i excellent excellent pick for sure but um this is going to bring us to what i'm assuming is our final picks here um i will go ahead and go first and it's a pick that i don't think a lot of people will um be expecting but it's a pick that's near and dear to my heart and it's a pick that i think you know for me is kind of in that same vein of the other two on my list and that's wolverine and the x-men wolverine and the x-men issue one wolverine and the x-men comes during this time we just spent this whole time you know bagging on you know that era of the x-men of this lost decade where post decimation it's just like marvel basically said nah not x-men we're we're, we're gonna focus on the stuff that we can make money with and we're gonna we're gonna make in humans books instead <laughs> you remember you remember yeah. when when the Inhumans I didn't, were I didn't even, supposed to be running the world? I didn't even talk about Inhumans versus X-Men, oh, which is what, what I think is one of the most egregious things that Marvel Editorial did at that time, Death where they X. kind of retconned yeah. and said that the, the Terrigen Mist was toxic to mutants and just continued to just wipe mutants off the board. It's it yeah, was, not great. It was not just like a blatant like hey guess what we're replacing the x-men with but it was also like the x-men's numbers had been dwindled so much and now you're gonna like have this whole thing just crumble underneath them on on the little bit of fragile ground that they have left but that being said this whole era of x-men had for me two really shining points and one of them is wolverine and the x-men now this for um for context this is pretty pretty early on in this what we call like this lost decade where utopia had just been kind of established cyclops was becoming more uh militarized more showing the shades of what he would become post uh post uh, avengers versus x-men and during an event called schism they had cut the line down the middle with the remaining mutants and they were either you know team wolverine or team cyclops and wolverine took a good batch of them back to the ruined xavier mansion rebuilt it and dubbed it the gene gray school for higher learning and which every time that they would bring that up during that period and scott would be like excuse me you called it what i just i die i died it was such a such a great character moment for all of them and what this book does is a lot of the same stuff that the uh the start of uncanny 139 did is the same stuff that astonishing x-men did because one thing we didn't bring up with astonishing x-men is that they and with uh morrison's run as well of new x-men is they really put a focus on these young characters growing up in this world that hates and fears them 
you know, there's this whole uh, arc in Astonishing X-Men dealing with the Danger Room. And, like, these students having to face down, like, what is going on with this, you know, this character who is, like, trying to kill them. And what Wolverine and the X-Men did was very much in that same vein of taking these characters and, you know, expanding upon that. Putting Kitty Pride and Bobby Drake, of all people, in teacher roles. Having uh, Wolverine and Beast be in this headmaster you know, dual kind of uh, relationship and bringing in characters like one of my favorite characters, who is also one of the worst characters, Quentin Quire. Quentin Quire is an incredible character who is also the worst person in the entire X-Men history. And I can say that. Like, it's it's the kind of self-awareness that Quentin Quire would also have, knowing that he's the worst. But this run is so fun. It brings back that school aspect while also dealing with this huge status quo change that is the x-men being dwell you know they're the x-men being cut down the middle two different sides dealing with things that are going on outside of the world you know right in the middle of this uh avengers versus x-men happens and so we're dealing with you know on the ground level these characters who are like sitting in school at you know the gene gray school for higher, higher learning on their phones watching as this battle is going on it's a grounding moment for the run and it's one of those few high points and one of those few bright spots in this era of x-men that is really hurting for good x-men stories and the way that they took these characters like quentin choir like brew you know the son of um son of gladiator like all of these characters who were you know had you know either little to no characterization beforehand and really growing them through this run it's i believe 42 issues of just jason aaron chris bacalo and um oh i'm blanking on the last artist but they really took these characters and told a story about these kids learning under headmaster wolverine and just all of the terrible things that would happen with that prompt so it's one of my favorite runs and it's something that if you are looking to find an entry point into modern x-men before it gets actually good this is a great like modern uh story especially for uh perhaps younger readers as well so wolverine and the x-men i still hold it near and dear to my heart for sure it's a really interesting choice and it's not one i would have picked honestly yeah. it's like yeah, like I said, this kind of period is my blind spot in terms of X-Men history. This was the time that I was uh, not really paying as much attention and reading X-Men comics. But um, despite the fact I honestly haven't read much of Wolverine and the X-Men, I was kind of aware that it was going on. I, I knew that Jason Aaron was writing this X-Men comic that focused on essentially Wolverine in the Charles Xavier role, having to train a, a new kind of class of students and that's that's a great premise um, especially if you're a fan of the wolverine character seeing logan forced to essentially put the claws away and do things in a more kind of paternal and diplomatic way it's it's just a great i i, I always like the idea of putting logan in that kind of leadership role i before the hickman relaunch and during the period where i was really not enjoying the x-men comics i pitched the idea of um, with the young, time-displaced X-Men, putting them with old man Logan and having oh. him forced to 
because that was the time where X-23 X was Wolverine and they brought Old Man Logan into the main Marvel universe. Yeah. I was kind of pitching that he should have to be like a, a super grizzled and like world-weary Charles Xavier training this team of like teenage versions of the original class of X-Men. Oh, that would have been um, great. That was kind of a, a, a book I would have loved to have written. But yeah, I, I think that this is a really good choice and it is a good jumping on point for the for the team it's that it it comes after a period of kind of big status quo changes and it does kind of like slow the slow the status quo down and just focus on more of the character dynamics focus on logan as headmaster focus on some of these younger lesser known characters and look i'm i'm a new x-men fan i'm always down for quentin choir <laughs> like Morrison's X-Men's my jam. Of course, I'm going to read a book if Kid Omega's in it, okay? Yes, Kid Omega. He's 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 so terrible in all the things. Like, it's so funny because he always gets compared to a character like Damian Wayne. And I... <laughs> and maybe it's because, you know, we have that, you know... Um, or at least I do. I have that Morrison-Quietly connection with um, Batman and Robin alongside New X-Men. That they kind of get compared. But... Quentin Quire is just the worst person given like such incredible stories uh, right out the gate in new X-Men with him, you know, being in love with one, if not all of the Stepford cuckoos and like them dealing with him and then just continually being the worst. Per- He's the one that kicks off schism who really yeah. does this whole modern, like at this period of the X-Men is the inciting incident. And it's just, I, I love that character and he is front and center in this book. So it's, it's absolutely a run that I hold near and dear for sure. But Owen, what is your final pick, your final entry point into the X-Men? So my final recommendation for good jumping on points to the X-Men, I'm going to go a bit more classic. Uh, there was part of me that wanted to throw X-Men issue one in there from 1963 and be like, yeah, just start at the beginning. You'll be fine. Easy. But as, as weird as it sounds, given kind of the, the status of Stanley and Jack Kirby and all the characters they created, especially in that kind of early to mid 1960s period, like 1962 to like 1966, it's like the volume of successful characters that the pair created and just churned out in that period. I'm of the opinion that you can kind of, skip some of that x-men run yeah i don't i don't know if that's controversial to say i've never really talked about it but um you know in 1970 marvel just cancelled the x-men and just stopped telling new stories i think from like issue 66 to like issue like 93 it was all just reprints yeah. of older stories it, because the x-men are so big today it kind of gets forgotten about that marvel kind of like gave up on the x-men throughout a good chunk of the 70s yeah, and it's funny, like, thinking about that now. Like, there's no way you would be able to get away with that now to be like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah for, like, 10 issues, we're just going to reprint older issues and just make them the numbering. Like, there's no way they would get away with that. But, like, at the time, people cared so little about the X-Men that they were just like, yeah, sure, whatever. So, the, and I'm, I'm quite, honestly, Eric, I'm quite surprised you haven't picked this choice because when I was kind of collating my list, this seemed like the most obvious one which is giant size X-Men number one from 1975. It's really for me where the modern, I mean, in a sense, like the the Morrison X-Men run is what starts like the 21st century modern X-Men. But like the X-Men team that you know as kind of general audiences 
Cyclops, Wolverine, Jean Grey, Storm, Nightcrawler, that team, that is born in Giant Size X-Men issue one. And you can read that having no prior knowledge of the Stanley Jack Kirby series and jumping great, jumping straight in. And then it propels you into the start of Chris Claremont's run. Obviously, this is from Len Wein and Dave Cockrum. And the premise is basically that the original X-Men team, Cyclops, Jean Grey, Angel, uh, Beast and Iceman, all get kidnapped and held hostage on Krakoa, the mutant island. And Xavier has to basically form a brand new team to go and rescue them. And that's where you get all the international X-Men characters. It's where you get Wolverine, Nightcrawler, Storm, Colossus, and also Thunderbirds there as well. Um, <laughs> and it, it's a really straightforward and simple story. It's Xavier recruits this new class of characters and this new mutant team to go into Krakoa and break the original X-Men out. Um, it's a, if you like 70s Marvel and you like that kind of, that style of storytelling, you'll really enjoy it, especially if you like Len Wein. Uh, you'll probably really love this issue. But it is, it's just, it, it brings the X-Men back from like five years out of print in such a good way that kind of really sets the template for what Claremont would do going forward. You know, it ends with this great shot of like the like a 13-man X-Men team. Because I, I think you do, especially like as people that enjoyed the animated shows um, or the films, you think of the X-Men as quite a big team. Yeah. You know, even like, I know Morrison's run kind of scales it back to just like five characters originally. And Whedon like slowly brings it back up in Astonishing. But it, it's this, like the Claremont run as well. It's quite a, a big collection of, of heroes in the X-Men. And this is really the start of that kind of, it sets up the whole idea of Cyclops and Wolverine's rivalry over Jean Grey. It introduces um, other characters like Sunfire and, and Banshee you know represent banshee i'm all i'm always down for some banshee <laughs> stories um and yeah it's just it's a it's one of the most pivotal like issues in the entire history of the x-men because it's it's this relaunch of a, of a team that had been cancelled for five years and probably at the time had just been viewed as a failure and if this issue didn't work there would be no x-men after this you'd get no chris yeah. claremont x-men you'd get no jonathan hickman x-men you'd get nothing this was like a real roll of the dice to like a, a second chance at bringing this team to popularity. And it really did kind of set the template for every single X-Men story going forward. So my third and kind of final recommendation is Giant Size X-Men issue one. And also it's probably the most iconic cover in the entire history of the X-Men. Yeah. Even if you've not that. known it, even if you don't know it, you know it. Because yeah, it's you great. You know the image of them all running at the cover and like, I, I thought very long and hard about putting that on the list, but at the end of the day, it didn't have Quentin Quire, so I didn't really think it deserved <laughs> to be on there. Uh, but no, I the thing that I love about Giant Size X-Men is it does everything that you said, like revitalize the characters, you know, brought new ideas forward, gave us a whole new cast, but it did something that always um caught my eye with marvel comics even when i was a kid is that the x-men when jack kirby and stanley you know created them yes they all had different powers they all you know were uh from different more or less different backgrounds but they were all fairly on the level with each other 
everybody was yeah. like everybody got along everybody was great it's the same you know issue with you know the justice league and the silver age they're all the same character just in different costumes like and, that even that even translates to a visual aspect because yeah. at this point the x-men still had that kind of a clearly defined kind of color palette for their costumes and they really did kind of all dress in a very similar way where you yeah. get this kind of second class and you get the kind of iconic x-men costumes that you come to expect and they didn't get along like that was the yeah. thing that like that has always struck me about like that team as like a status quo shift is like these characters thunderbird is a dick like he's just like immediately like doesn't like anybody and like you know wolverine is much the same way and like having all of these clashing characters who you know are kind of forced to work together is a recipe for a great story and is a recipe for engaging uh narratives and so that's it's iconic it there's it's iconic for a reason just like the morrison run and it is absolutely like needed to be on this list for sure so um as we're kind of wrapping up here owen any final thoughts on the x-men on kind of getting into the x-men and any uh tips or tricks you would give to someone trying to get into the x-men when it comes to their comics um yeah I, I, to be honest i think between the two of us we gave a pretty extensive list of all the best kind of jumping on points for the characters in different phases of their history if you want to jump on with giant size number one and kind of really go back to like the start of the x-men's like modern history in the 70s or if you want to see what's going on at the moment jump into house of x issue one we've kind of, we've really covered both ends of the spectrum and then some of the greatest hits in between um yeah i i, I think not to pat ourselves on the back too much, but I think we've done well. I think we've done <laughs> well, Eric. A little bit, yeah. Yeah, I, I, um, I think, yeah. you know, there, there's no other, other, you know, authority you have to listen to. This is all, you know, don't even listen to the creators. We've covered it. <laughs> yeah, but I just, I'm trying to think of some other maybe non-comic um, recommendations for getting into X-Men. We talked about... Uh, Obviously, the 90s X-Men, the animated series, is mm -hmm. as definitive an adaptation out of comics media that you'll get anywhere. Um, it really, really does translate um, 80s and early 90s X-Men comics beautifully with such kind of love and reverence to the source material, but also in such an accessible way where you don't have to have read the comics to kind of really understand what's going on. Um, yeah. And I'd also recommend Revolution. the... You yeah, I was going to say, I'd also recommend X-Men Evolution, which is a really great um, animated series. It is kind of overshadowed by the 90s show, but it's also, it's a really different show to that. And it it does kind of bring some of the Morrison sensibilities into the animated show. It's probably a bit of a darker show, I think that's fair to say, especially yeah. as it gets on. It does get quite dark in its kind of last two seasons. Um, and then, like, obviously, the, the X-Men live-action films are... Can be a mixed bag, I think, that's fair to say. Yes. They're either pretty good or pretty bad. There's there's not many of them that are kind of just mediocre. Um, obviously, the first two X-Men films are classics. Um, first Class is a good jumping on point. Uh, if you kind of want to see it from the beginning of the, the foundation of the X-Men, I think Days of Future Past is probably the best live-action X-Men film, in my opinion. Um, or if you fancy a good cry, just watch Logan. Yeah. 
and if you want to hear Cyclops swear at Magneto, go watch Dark Phoenix. Like it's yeah. If if you watch an X Men <laughs> film or uh, animated show or read an X Men comic and be like, this needs more out of context f bombs just suddenly and abruptly, <laughs> then watch Dark Phoenix. You too can be one of the eight people that have watched that movie. If you watch it, tell me what the villain's name is because it's not said in the film. <laughs> Yeah, so overall, I mean, the X-Men have a very long and storied history, but there are access points. It can be, at times, incredibly difficult to get into the X-Men, but also something that's great about the characters is that there literally is a story for everybody in there, yeah. both for good and for bad. And throughout the history of the characters, they've grown, they've changed, but they are always, you know, very clearly kind of pushing forward the um the ideals of the x-men which is you know persevering through a world that hate and fears hates and fears you and um just getting you know as we're wrapping up here owen if our listeners want to connect with you kind of uh follow up on what you you've got going on where can they find you yeah so if you want some more of me you can follow me on twitter just at owen likes comics I'm uh, somewhat active on Twitter, I think it's fair to say. Um, normally uh, teasing videos or other interesting things I'm working on. Uh, if you like listening to me ramble about X-Men, you might enjoy my most recent video on the YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Comics, where I dive into the history of X-Men throughout the 1990s and early 2000s and talk about why I think Grant Morrison saved and kind of revolutionized the X-Men. Um, so yeah, thanks for having me on. And yeah, just... Cheers. Now time for the weekly review. This is the segment of our show where I review something weekly. And right now we are reviewing season one of Invincible, the latest and greatest comic book adaptation featured on uh, Amazon Prime. And joining me here, of course, is my other half, my uh, heterosexual life partner, and the only man that I would allow to throw me through a city and put me in front of an oncoming train. Malcolm Russell Nelson. Malcolm, how are you, man? I'm good, man. I would never do that. Instead, I would just, you know, steal a piece of your hair and then have the Mahler twins create a duplicate of you that I could then inhabit. That's uh, true. But it would be a younger duplicate of you. Yeah. That's true. I'll that just really do that That really happened. Yeah. That's true. Um, it's very true. <laughs> so <laughs> It's super a, not weird. Like it's, it's not weird at all. Friends just do that. People just do that. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so we are talking about season one of Invincible, which wrapped up as we are recording this today. Um, what a show, man. Yeah. Like, what the oh hell? Oh, my God. <laughs> um, there are going to be spoilers in this. Hell? Just be aware. But like, man, what a show. What the What the hell? Yeah, it it had no right to be as incredible as it was. No, just what the hell? <laughs> uh, 
So I want to talk about a few key things here and we'll just kind of go wild on them. But uh, what I loved so much about the show was how character driven it was. Yes. Like every single character that you were given any amount of time with mattered and you cared about them to a certain extent. Uh Um, No more so than our, I would say our co-leads, Mark and Nolan Grayson, Invincible and Omni-Man. I do appreciate that the show made them co-leads. Yeah. Yeah, it was. Yeah. The treatment of both of them, because they both got their own arcs, which I loved. Uh Um, And the performances were incredible. Steven Yun and J.K. Simmons were on fire every single episode. This has been such a great year for Steven Yun seriously uh, and yeah. i'm really happy because i think he's a great talent just in general agreed but... it could have been better but um we won't talk about that here we won't get into that mm. it's still raw it's still raw i'm sorry <laughs> the father um so speaking of fathers jk simmons plays an incredibly layered dad in yeah. this show yeah. um i know there was some discussion uh, after the first few episodes dropped of the show that his Omni man felt colder and a little bit yes. more um, uh, standoffish than the comics. Yes. And yes. I would, I would almost, I would agree with those first few episodes, but I would argue that he gets a more, um, a more well-rounded arc throughout the season than he gets during the same amount of time in the, in the same amount of time in the comic. Yeah. I, yeah, I think they, especially with having the knowledge of what comes after this point in the comic, I think they started to do a little bit of legwork set up for that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you even see that in, in this episode, in the finale, uh, yeah the the bit where he flashes back to mark's like baseball game oh, like that's i oh, oh which is which is an easy mark of a scene like i'll fully admit that but it's incredible uh, <laughs> it's so well acted it's really well acted like and it it gets the moment and you know it's right as he's about to deliver the final punch oh, and then he can't yeah. and he just like flops down and that's an incredible incredible bit that's yeah. so good um so yeah i think they did a little bit of like work as far as setting up like where the character of nolan goes Mm -hmm. uh they set a little bit of that up and a little bit of that conflict here because in the comic like he's you don't really know what's going on with him until you find out what's going on with him but in the show like they made him seem a little more evil uh, a little more bad guy pretty much from the get-go because he's a little cold a little standoffish a little yeah. too intense with mark you know like in his training stuff like he's the first episode you know, this when he, he just slugs him slugs him in the chest oh my god yeah and he's just like oh you should have been able to handle that like that's fine and so, <laughs> I, I have to tell a personal story here because like i i vibed with that scene so much like i i'm a military brat and my dad yeah. you know being on a military base we would uh go and do stuff together that like the base would feature like if there was like yeah uh, like a sports game or like you know for this specific example it was an mma class it was just okay. featuring it on the base and so they had um they were teaching us stuff teaching us holds and everything and they had us like you know pair up to basically to spar and i remember I was, 
I think I had to be like 12 or 13, something like that. And we were just, you know, going and I had no concept of what MMA was. I didn't care. And my dad full on like got me in a guillotine and choked me out. Jesus. Like, and he, and, and it was the same kind of thing where afterwards he was like, oh, I am like, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to do that to you. Yeah. And I was just like, Jesus "Ah, Christ. ah." So like watching that scene, I was like, Ooh, that's close. That's close. Yeah. That's really close. Good God. That was terrifying. Poor. And again, great performance from Steven Young. Oh, you hurt me. You hurt me. Yeah. (laughs) And it like puts a chip on his shoulder for the rest of the season. For the rest of the show. Yeah. And I, I love that. And it's so perfectly like gets called, you know, called back to multiple times. First off, in that first episode, after he yeah. goes off for his first vigilante, he's mm-hmm. like, hit me. I wasn't ready before. I am now. Like he's got yeah. this like inferiority complex about it. Yeah, you nailed it. Mark has a chip on his shoulder the whole show, which is yeah. a very different thing from from the from the comic. Absolutely. Like in the comic, Mark wants to be a superhero, but in the show, Mark wants to be like Omni Man. Yeah, like which makes the turn hurt even more. Agreed, and yeah. I think that has a lot to do with the fact that they spent more time fleshing out Omni Man in this in this series than again like yeah. the amount that he was fleshed out in the show and or uh, in the original comic and honestly they did a really good job fleshing out a lot of characters in this show that like are only going to get more compelling as mm-hmm. time goes on rex explode we got some with his arc was fantastic even though rex has a very interesting arc he is like the worst just in general yeah. And then um, we got more time with Robot. We got time with the Mahler twins. Um, there's one that I I am blanking on right now. Um, Amber. Yeah. Got. There's a lot more stuff with Amber. Like she's actually a character and not she's just a, character. a girlfriend character, <laughs> which is interesting. Um, yeah, super super interesting. Just in general, like getting get, Titan. Titan is like that a Titan fledged character rocks. Yeah. So Which good. I mean, they, they get to that see, a little bit like there. later on, but yeah, I didn't even mean it intentionally. Uh, they get to that a little bit later on, like in the comic, um, we'll, we'll talk about changes, but yeah, but yeah, they making him a character very early and making you sympathize with him very fast and being like, no, like I get, and that's a, the, the cast of this thing is banger. But that's just another strength of like, oh, yeah, right. You get Mahershala Ali, who people like can automatically connect with. You can automatically very easily connect with an actor like Mahershala Ali. Absolutely. And just get where he's coming from. It's effortless. He says three sentences. I'm like, I'm on that guy's side. Like 100 percent. I'm on that guy's side. Even if he's like, I know where he's coming from. Yeah, exactly. It's it's incredible. And honestly, like you said, like the voice cast is stellar across the board. I mean, uh. I think it's Jillian Jacobs as Adam yeah. Eve. Like she's yeah. fantastic. She's um, wonderful as Eve. Yeah. We have um oh my god, I'm blanking on his name, but he plays William. Uh Andrew uh yes, Andrew uh, something. Uh uh, uh what's uh Andrew Renellis? Uh Reynolds? Reynolds? Andrew Ren- Reynolds? I don't that know how to pronounce right. it. Something like that. Yeah. But yeah, he's yeah. fantastic. We have Kevin Michael Richardson as the Mahler twins. Hell yeah. Like, Walt Best Goggins in the biz. as Cecil. Goggins as Cecil. Goggins Excellent. as Cecil, man. Yeah. I never knew Nailed that it. he sounded like that reading the comic until I heard him and I was like, of course that's what he sounds like. Yeah, I always pictured him as like a younger Tommy Lee Jones. And uh, Ooh, this, is, this is a good call close to that. 
Like, sure. uh, plus he brings a more sympathetic edge to Cecil than Cecil has in the comic. Like, they, again, a lot of little changes, but yeah. yeah. Speaking of which, uh, like, let's let's get into it. Like, could be because this eight episodes of the first season of Invincible covers roughly about the first dozen comics when it comes to like the major events i was gonna say and and, and also yet, the first like 25 yeah, <laughs> and yet pulls all of these different things from the first like quarter of the entire run and I yeah it does it really well but at the yeah. same time it makes me not concerned but interested in seeing how they handle the rest of the story going forward i think i think they're using the effect of the uh season uh season break like time to pass in between the end of season one and the beginning of season two to affect because a lot of a lot of the b plot stuff that they have in the show you know the mars mission and the titan episode and stuff is all stories that take place after omni-man is gone yeah to take place in the in between the time that we see omni-man again and so it, it was very startling immediately for them to be like wait they're doing this on the show now like he's doing the mars mission now he he's going to tour the college now like all of this stuff is like really weird because i'm used to it coming after omni-man's flipped out (laughs) (laughs) but i mean you have a jk simmons you want jk simmons to be around all the time you want him for as much time as possible yeah and like what what it does in a way is it makes a it makes a very um it makes watching the show a very different experience for both readers of the comics and new fans, which I love. Yes. Because if you don't know anything going into it, it's just an incredible story. Mm -hmm. If you do know stuff going into it, the stuff that happens becomes enriched. Yeah. Like, and and I've mentioned it before in like passing conversation off mic and stuff, but like the moment that battle beast shows up. Oh yeah. I, it's Hell like, yeah. it's like that moment where you're playing a video game for the second time, no new game plus mm-hmm. or whatever. And you run across a boss that you fought at the end of the game far sooner than you did the first time playing through. And it's this moment of, I am not prepared for this. Yeah. And watching that. It's like, Mark, you are not ready to fight someone of ba- battle beasts level. He is so yeah. of your weight class and it shows. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. In that'll be freaking rocks god that fight is so good that i think that's my favorite episode of the run it's it's, incredible fantastic and it's it's my second favorite it is very very close i i have to give it to that finale man like everything that happens in that finale is incredible but that that episode that features essentially titan's villain story villain origin story like is so well done and michael dorn voices battle beast yeah to perfection it is incredible what he is able to do and really what the entire um what the entire show is able to do by taking those changes and taking you know basically taking a buffet of Mm -hmm. stuff from the from the comic and putting it into the show to make it hit that much harder like i'm i'm rereading like the early issues for a reason i'll get into later Mm. and amber doesn't even show up until omni man has left yeah in the show she's mentioned but like yeah and it's crazy what they've done in that time like it's 
man, it is mind-boggling the choices they made because they could have just gone through and made it exactly one-to-one to the comic. And honestly, it wouldn't have been as good. Like, the comic is paced very slowly for those first, like, ten issues before shit hits the fan. Like, yeah. stuff does happen. It's not, like, a slog to get through. But by the time that stuff starts to really kick off, like, oh, man. Like, you are in for a... You are not prepared for the ride you're about to go in. And what the show does so well is that it's able to essentially prepare you for all the stuff to come it's 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 preparing you for one hell of a journey because <laughs> for those of you who aren't reading the comics there Trust is going to be more space stuff it only gets bigger than this like this is this is just scratching the iceberg man it's just a scratch yeah and there's like there's this amazing thing that the show is able to do by taking some of the stuff that the comic does so well and making it hit harder and that chalk that's chalked up i think a lot to the animation the animation in this is superb like yes. it reminds me honestly yes. and this might be a weird comparison it reminds me a lot of the fleischer stuff like it it definitely has that feel just and maybe that's just you know the 2d nature of it but it definitely yeah. has that feel uh yeah it does remind me a lot of that because there's a certain fluidity to it right like characters when they're moving like seem to feel like you feel every hit you feel every punch like the speed of certain characters you can feel them it like it works incredibly well and the yeah. animation style like i've seen some people say it's too simple and in certain moments i could absolutely agree certain frames that are like hmm like there's a at the uh during the post credit scene of the first episode during the moment where spoilers i guess uh <laughs> omni-man is just ripping the guardians to shreds there's this conversation between yeah. the woman and uh the immortal where she's just like you know it's him or us and he looks at her he says i choose us and the animation is incredibly flat oh my in that god frame. i'm like yeah yeah boy yikes yeah it's wild but thankfully <laughs> like that's that's very few and far between and it's oh man it is so well utilized in its it in its animation and in its character designs which were all done by cory walker by cory walker which and is awesome and it so and cool. it blends the cory walker and ryan otley style really well yes absolutely um, i i love that it looks like a perfect brainchild of both of them yeah and like what it does so well in that is that the animation is so clean and so nice looking that when it gets violent it is jarring at times like there the is finale is upsettingly jarring like yes. jarring is the best word it's it's a shock it's like culture shock <laughs> yeah and there are moments like that throughout the season like yeah it hits you over the head with it figuratively literally, literally in the first yeah. episode yeah like that slaughter yeah. of the guardians of the globe by omni-man is brutal it's funny because i i didn't expect going into the show i expected it to be a little more toned down than the comic agreed and it was ramped up by like 10 more points <laughs> yeah you, you can tell that you it see was it executive produced episode. by robert kirkman like he's, yeah exactly he's just going for it. like it was so brutal that that 
destruction of the guardians of the globe is so upsetting <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's just, it's, and metered and patient with its violence which is really interesting and it, part of that is because it takes the time to get you attached to these characters in a very short amount of time yeah like it opens the entire show with them the entire like post credit scene is like a 15 minute like hey get to know these characters better before we brutally murder them Yep, and like it escalates as it goes the fight against battle beast is just brutal to watch like there was a moment where i thought for sure i was like oh they're deviating they just killed monster girl oh my god i totally totally thought that's where they were going so i was like wow that's weird and like maybe i'll actually kill samson (laughs) like i thought that too like they just Uh, they don't shy away from it and it makes me excited for the kind of stuff we're gonna see because it only gets more brutal from here yeah like the 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 sheer amount of violence is because there's there's a difference between i think um the violence that's in this show and what is something like the boys which at times somewhat rides the line between violence and torture porn yes and in this show what it does so well besides maybe it's just because like they're like animated characters it's a cartoon but the violence matters the violence yeah it's all about causality and yeah. like consequence yeah the violence is used to enhance the narrative it's not yeah. just violence for violence's sake like yeah. if it happens it matters and no more so than in that finale like oh my god the amount of violence that we see is just ridiculous and we've touched on it kind of already with um mentioning it you know between both of us four but our two favorite episodes are two of the most violent episodes in the entire show yeah like the just the fight in what ends up being or what starts as machine heads you know uh sweet and turns later on into titan suite yes jarring yeah because not only it's very upsetting (laughs) not only is invincible like beaten within an inch of his life once the guardians show up you're like okay this might be evened out a little bit and it absolutely is and then it gets like three times worse somehow because then they're just more casualties (laughs) yeah because it's and it's funny because it's in that moment that you kind of realize that oh if it was just like the guardians against this group of villains like they'd probably do handily well but once you throw in a battle beast like it's over like it doesn't Mm -hmm. matter and he's it's hard to watch because you care about these characters you care about their journey and when you get to an episode like the finale where it's just like oh you know the, the i love the synopsis for it on amazon prime where it's like mark has to yeah. prove himself against an unstoppable force and i'm like no is that what happened <laughs> because i just watched 45 minutes of mark getting thrown into cities and using yeah. like a javelin to kill people yeah like it is I... violent there the train scene let's just talk about it the train scene is, I, I was saying off mic, I think that might be the most violent thing I've ever seen. <laughs> it's heartbreaking because it's there, there's very upsetting. There's this moment because, like, Mark is outclassed. There's no, like, mm-hmm. you start the episode knowing that he's mm-hmm. outclassed and knowing yeah. what Omni Man is capable of. And so yeah. when Mark says, I'm not joining you, 
I'm going to defend this place, you know he is in for a beatdown. And there is yeah. a certain amount of... I would love to have watched this not reading the comics because in any kind of superhero media or really in any kind of fictional media in general, this is the moment where Mark proves himself and is able to beat back his father however narrowly and send him off into space. Mm -hmm. That is not what happens in this episode. That is not what happens here. Yeah. Mark gets brutalized by his father and is... It, it starts with that moment that he's thrown into Chicago. Like, yeah. he God. goes through this Ugh. building and, like, we've seen this a million times before. Like, a superhero being thrown into a street, the street kicks up, the superhero, like, gets back to his feet and starts fighting again. But this is a, such a, um, such an emphasized way. Like, yeah. as Mark, because Mark is thrown. He is just, like, launched. Yeah. And he is sent through this building and through the street and the street is coming up onto people mm-hmm. like a wave. Yep. And it's terrifying because it's all terrifying. these people only see the street essentially like coming up to eat them. Yeah. And it's like, I mean, I, I completely, I think I blocked this out from my mind due to trauma, but like before <laughs> this, there's the pilot. There is this heroic moment. Oh, God, that is before it. Yes. Oh, God. There is this heroic moment where, you know, Cecil scrambles these jets. And they say right out the get, like, what are these jets going to do against Omni-Man? And Cecil's just like, well, she's like nothing. it's going to slow him down minutes. and give, yeah, give the yeah. kids some time to figure something out. Yeah. And that's exactly what they do. They are useless against him. And Mark, because he's a hero, sees one of the pilots falling, his parachute. His shoe won't launch. So he yeah. goes up and he saves him. It's, a again, a classic superhero trope. He Great saves superhero. the guy, brings mm-hmm. him down, and the guy goes, Oh man, thank you so much. I didn't think I was going to make it. And then boom, Omni-Man lands behind him. And immediately I'm like, no, don't take this from him. He saved him. No, please. And Omni-Man just goes like, um, Mark says like, he could have died. And he's like, now, 50 years from now, what's the difference? And he just reaches up and squishes this guy's head. I like, that was the moment that I was like, (gasps) like I gasped audibly. Yeah, and I from there it only got worse. It only got worse. Like I mean the uh, the, the bit in the, the bit in the city where after he's like landed in the street and he sees the building they crashed through oh, about God, to break in yeah, half and so he goes falling. flies up to the building catches the top bit and he's at he's like on the outside of this room that has this mom and this daughter and they're both sliding as the building's falling and he catches the mom who falls out the window like first when he hits the building to catch it all the windows burst yeah which is such a cool detail. great super cool detail and then the mom falls out of the window and he catches her with one hand he's holding the building with another hand and then the building just falls and the worst part for me was this girl <laughs> this little girl is screaming this little and, girl screaming for and her mark mom. knows that he can't hold this building up and he yeah. looks at her and it again steven yun oh my god just says don't be scared don't be yeah. scared because he knows what's about to happen and like Go ahead, like just it, the the building falls, crushes him. He gets up, and he sees the arm of the woman that he was that he was holding on to, and goes and grabs her hand because her hand is sticking out. Hand he's open, still holding, grabs, holding on to her he, He's hand. still holding it, right? Yeah. yeah. So he, he pulls and sees that the arm is entirely detached. Just the arm. 
Oh, it's just god. the arm and i was like oh god <laughs> it's tragic it's honestly it's tragic. tragic they keep doing that to mark too so i appreciate throughout the episode yeah that throughout the series because they do that in the martian episode too or not the martian episode the uh the 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 the, the aliens that come to oh the flaxons uh, yeah, the Flaxons. Thank you. Yes. They did that in the Flaxons episode That's where, right, like, he goes woman. to save that old woman and she gets creamed and exploded. And she's like, oh, oh, God. And, like, freaks out because that's, like, his first real, like, superhero fight. Yeah. And he freaks out. Like, they keep doing that. I really appreciate that. In the show, Mark is nowhere near as good of a superhero as he is in the comics. Like, in the comic, he picks it up very naturally. Nowhere near. And he is pretty bad at it in yeah. the show. But he keeps trying. Like he wants to try, which is wonderful. So great about the show is because you watch him make this growth from this terrible yeah. superhero to a pretty damn good superhero. Yeah. But by the end, that journey meant nothing. It meant nothing. That's the, the thing. It's all trivial, which is an incredible lesson to learn. And yeah. the, the finale is all just Omni Man teaching him lessons. Which is super interesting. Like, Ugh. it's again a really good superhero trope of like the supervillain being like, I'm going to teach the hero this many lessons. And by the end of it, they're going to be on my side. And they never are. It's a yeah. very strict superhero trope thing, you know, but the way that it's handled here is incredible. the way it's handled here is great. Because he treats him like a father who is just punishing his son. And it makes it more personal. And that's what makes it even more heartbreaking during that train scene. When yeah. Mark is like, sent to the subway, Omni-Man holds him up and the train is like coming and he's like, the no, back no, of no his I need head. to save them. And Omni-Man's like, maybe this is what you need. And he just puts him in front of the train. And bef the second before it happens, I realize what's about to happen. And it's, it's that, it's that moment where you like, and I've, you know, we, we've all, maybe not we've all, but if you've ever been in a car accident, there is yeah. this like split second of clarity right before it happens Yeah, that you just like, oh, this is what's about to happen. Like there's this moment mm -hmm. of like stillness. Mm -hmm. and that's what I thought. That's what I experienced in this moment. I was like, oh God. And then the train just comes tearing through and really, I mean, Mark comes tearing through this train and it yeah. speaks to his Viltrumine and vulnerability that he is just like, all these people are dying. It is the exact, it is the so, answer to the Spider-Man 2 Raimi train scene. Yes. It, it looks like he's trying to catch them too. Cause like his arms are moving yeah. and it looks like he's trying to catch them. Like he's trying to push them back, but because it's, he's it's just an immovable so object now and it's moving so fast. He's just cutting them all in pieces and he is just mauling all these people. And it's oh, so upsetting. And then when God. they're done, like he is just covered in blood. Like he is red with blood and yeah. guts all over him. And it is one of the most upsetting things I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah, man. But I was, I was like on the verge of like tears throughout this yeah. episode because of yeah. how, how much you can see it breaking Mark. But the moment yeah. that got me, I, I watched it once last night and I watched it again right before we got on mic um, at the very end. You know, they go back to the Himalayas, which they've come mm -hmm. to several times throughout the show. And mm -hmm. Omni Man is screaming at him, and it's terrifying. Like the that's, way that that's they why frame you get the shot in the animation. Yes, yeah. that, that this is full on whiplash, whiplash. J.K. Simmons. Yeah, it's just it's like not my throwing, <laughs> throwing a symbol at Mark Grayson's head. Like he he's standing over him, and he's just like, yeah. 
all of these people are going to die. I am force it like all the like yeah. 500 years from now, blah, blah, blah. And he says the line that broke me in the comics. It and was... breaks me even more here because he says, yeah, what are you going to have in 500 years? And there's this silent moment where he just goes, you, dad, I'll have you. Yeah. And and, it, and the fact that in the show he's saying it through like a collapsed lung uh, and like the blood is spurting out of his mouth as he's saying like he is clearly dying. <laughs> and he's dab. <laughs> like, oh god. Like I cried. I'm I'm tearing up like th- just talking it's, about it. Like it it's broke hard. my heart. Yeah. And you see in only the way like um like visual media can show mm-hmm. Nolan's heartbreaking. Yeah, you see Omni Man, who is basically convinced himself throughout the entire episode that he is a Viltrumite and he is a monster yes. and yes. has done monstrous things. You see him become a father for one brief moment once again, and you see his heartbreak. And then, like you mentioned earlier, the baseball scene, and yeah. you see this like this this Omni Man who's still very much in Viltrumite mode, you know, watching his, mm-hmm. son, you know play baseball and very and it's again the attention to detail in this show is ridiculous but the fact that mark strikes out twice first yeah. before hitting the ball i don't before know hitting why. the ball it's it's it hit very specific really but it's perfect yeah and just watching him watching his face change when yeah. debbie is like convincing him like hey this is all happening and he just like he softens and that's the moment that he made that choice yeah and he flies off into this into the sky the tears are going man it's right before he flies off and it's something that they couldn't do in the comic because in the comic he flies off and it's that great last page of him flying in space which i love that they use that image of him with the arms out and the face for the show like as he's flying out of the atmosphere but right before he takes off he does this thing and it's it's such good acting on the <laughs> on the animation side yes. of Omni Man just be like ah. and he looks frustrated. He looks like he's like about to yell something, and then he like looks up because he's trying to hold back the tears. Every he man my has face is ever done that. Every yes. man has done that once in their life, at least. Yes. He he's about to cry and he's like, oh God, oh no, I'm mad. I'm not sad. I'm mad. I'm not sad. And then he takes off. And uh, then the tears just fall, and it's uh, it's wonderful. It looks so perfect. They nailed yeah, that. Man. And then yeah. you know, you see kind of the completion of everyone's arcs in it too. Like the Guardians of the Globe <laughs> get this really touching scene. Um, Hell yeah! Just, that's the best Rex scene. That's I think the ever. best Rex scene. In I think com- ever. Like in the com- like that's better than I any. I put that right up with scene. a certain moment. You probably know what I'm talking about with Rex in the comics but like yes i think like this is right up there yeah this was so good of him cleaning the stain because cecil left the stain from the guardians on the wall and said you guys said you know when you've earned it yep and samson (laughs) is just like you haven't we haven't earned it and he straight up and rex just looks at him like seriously fuck you (laughs) and he goes and like starts cleaning it samson grabs him and everyone just squads up again and they're like yeah we are exhausted but we will beat the shit out of you if we have to and he recognizes like now we're okay now we're the guardians of the globe that's awesome oh man so good that is awesome as the as the show wraps up or as the season wraps up we get this conversation with alan who returns and i love that Mm -hmm. um 
Seth Rogen nailing it as Alan. Perfect, Killing perfect choice. It. Perfect Killing choice. It. He's only in two scenes. Perfect choice. <laughs> Excellently done. And like yeah. we get these teases for the future of mm-hmm. the series. We get mm-hmm. all these teases with um with the Martians and dealing yep. with the threat of the um what are they called? Uh the secrets. The secrets. Uh, yeah. we get a uh we get a tease of Doc Seismic. We get you mm-hmm. know the Saxons getting themselves ready. Battle Beast is still out there somewhere. Mm-hmm. And it's oh man, it's so good. It's so good. So as we're looking it's so good. the future, we now know as of this recording, they are getting a season two and season three. And I am mm-hmm. psyched. Yeah, it makes sense. There's a lot more story to tell. So much. Uh, like a lot more story to even in the way that this is like a condensed version of the show or yeah. of the comic, there's still a lot more story to tell. Yeah, we've cracked maybe a fifth of what's going on in it's the even. comic. And it's <laughs> yeah. again, like this covers the first this first season, you know, we're taking out some of the stuff that they peppered in for major yeah. events. This is the first 10 issues and there's over 140 issues in this show Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. we are going to be with this for a little bit and i'm just going to say if you were um thrown off by the violence if you are you know really surprised i am just going to say one word and people will know what i mean i'm sure malcolm will as well conquest conquest um You're not ready for conquest. <laughs> that is, even if you think is, you are. That has been my frame of reference. Anyone who like has watched the show and is like, "Oh man, like I kind of want to check out the books." Like, is it similar? I was like, "Oh, trust me, the books as violent as the show gets, the book gets more violent." Worse. Conquest, yeah, conquest is coming. Conquest, <laughs> conquest is coming. Um, we Invincible might not, War and conquest. We and might then not the even might know. Over. We might not even you know get conquest in season two but rest assured conquest is coming and no one is going to be ready for him yeah that's got to be like season four like you you gotta have some time for that like that that's gonna mark at least a couple wins between the smackdowns that are omni there's there's a lot of stuff that has to happen before conquest yeah a lot of stuff but yeah, man. So overall thoughts on the show, how would you rate it if you want it, if you did give it an arbitrary rating? Because I, man, like the I, choices I, they made, man. Are, it's, it's, it's hard to quantify because they changed a lot too. Yeah, with they've changed certain, a lot. Um, gender swaps, Eth- race swaps. Ethnicities. Uh, Mark yeah. Grayson is not Asian in the comics. Yeah, Amber is not black in the comics, nope. but I think it enriched the story by changing those races. Yeah, I'm an I, I'm a I'm an Asian boy who gets to see an Asian boy be a superhero. Like, yeah, it's pretty goddamn cool. It's awesome. That's pretty goddamn cool. And like in a year that we're getting this and Shang Chi later, like, yeah, yeah, hell yeah, yeah, hell yeah, like yes. that's wonderful. So final um, thoughts, um, if you could give it a rating. I could give it a rating. I guess I'd have to like on a regular 10 scale, I'd maybe go like eight and a half, nine. Like it's, it's pretty great. Like there's not many things that I would change. Um, I think it's, I think it's pretty great. I think they, I think plot wise, they race to a little bit of stuff a little fast. Um, you know, I, the, the, the robot, uh, robot (laughs) taking Rex's DNA, Rudy, you know, making Rudy and then being there while, 
spoilers while Rex is around <laughs> is <laughs> is a really weird thing. Like that that worked really well in the comic because Rex was not around uh, for whatever reason. For whatever reason, and it's very weird now that both of them are like that's very strange and they kind of gloss over that really fast and there yeah. needs to be a much larger conversation about that <laughs> especially agree. since rex is an ass like he would not be okay with this and, he, and they touch on it in uh but in not enough episode seven but i am excited to see more of that yeah. especially as we get into some of the choices that rudy and monster girl make down the line yes exactly um th- yeah there's there's some things that i can kind of see where the show is going is like it's gonna have some more changes than the comic like i'm sure rex is going to be around for a while because you want manzoukas around Absolutely. you know like i'm sure you know oh they're gonna get omni man back pretty fast because you want jk simmons around like you want to have these talents you know so i'm i'm curious to see what they do um but yeah i i it was awesome man yeah, dude. It was awesome. I agree. Yeah. I I would I would probably go 9 out of 10. Like I yeah. loved it that much. Yeah. Um there are definitely some things that we already mentioned like some animation guffs and again, I do think that they moved too a little too quickly to set uh-huh. certain things in motion, but uh-huh. it makes me excited to see how they're going to handle it when it comes to the execution of those ideas. Yeah. So, um yeah, that's going to wrap up this review, man. But Something very special is happening that I'm going to just drop in here for you because this isn't the last time we're going to be talking about Invincible. The weekly review is going away for a little bit, and we are going to be taking this Invincible chat from the medium of animation into the comics. We are turning the uh, the weekly review into the Geek Explained book club for a little bit. Ooh. And... You know, I've had such a great time talking with Malcolm for the last, you know, couple months about Falcon Winter Soldier, hear about Invincible and all this stuff that and obviously from the feedback that I've gotten, people have loved hearing you on here. So Hey, that's great. Very excited to continue this conversation. And we may be recruiting one more Invincible fan, possibly the biggest comic Invincible fan on the planet to Ooh. be joining us with uh mr jacob brown that's right folks us. robert kirkman is going to robert kirkman jo- I mean, himself jacob <laughs> <laughs> but yeah honestly um malcolm has been singing invincible's praises for as long as i have known him yeah. um jacob the same way he's the person who introduced me to invincible and yeah. i am very excited to talk with these guys as we go through my first big read through for the comics as Hell we yeah. are recording this i'm still reading through i am nowhere near the end so this is going to be a wild ride that we get to go on Hell yeah. It's going to be scary. It's going to be very scary. And I'm going to have a lot of feelings. I can already tell. So you have, have you read the last issue? Have you read like the finale at all? No. Okay. I've read probably, I have read probably up to issue 80 maybe. So I've, I've gone through the first half. Las Vegas. Yes. Is that right? Okay. Okay. Yes. So that, that, that just happened. So okay. I am excellent. I know exactly I'm, where you are. Cool. I am taking my time. I am like, cause I really, I want this to be as, you know, real as possible when it comes to like yeah. this shit that's going to happen. So yeah, very excited. Uh, looking forward to it. So look forward to that. Uh, it's going to be a separate 
kind of thing that we're going to be doing. Keep your ears out for it. Keep your eyes out for it. And tune in for the Geeksplain Book Club. Book Club. I'm already screwing up the title and we haven't even started. Keep your eyes peeled for the Geeksplain Book Club on Invincible coming very, very soon. GSBC, baby. Ooh. Welcome back to this week's Comics Countdown. This is the segment of our show where I talk about the comics that I think you should be picking up this week. Whether it's at your local comic book shop, a comicsology, or however you get your comics, these are the ones I think you should definitely take a look at. But before we get into this week's books, we got to take a look back at last week's books with the Geeksplain Pick of the Week of last week. And honestly, let me be honest with you, we had a lot of good comics last week. Like, it was, it was ridiculous. And it ended up being a three-way dance between three incredible books but the one that ended up coming out on top for me was detective comics number 1035 written by mariko tamaki with art by dan mora and then a backup with art by clayton henry man this book was fantastic like it's it's so good if you're not like we complain a lot. I think a lot in the comic book community about there being too many Batman titles. But genuinely, this if there was only one Batman title out of all of them, out of all of them, regardless of the amazing creators that are on all of these Bat books, if I had to pick one, this would be the one. It's so good. The art's amazing. The writing's fantastic. And the backup this week featuring Huntress was incredible. It's so good. If you're not reading Detective Comics, do yourself a favor. You need to do it. I will also give a shout out to Beta Ray Bill number two, as well as Action Comics number 1030, both of which were phenomenal comics and just barely, just barely barely were outpaced by Detective Comics. Such a great week. And this week, turning our eyes now to the week ahead of us, has some uh, some pretty good comics. So this week, we've got 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 books. 10 books to just... Man, there's a lot. So let's go ahead and dive into it. And first off, we're starting off the... One that I uh, I had I would be remiss if I didn't uh, mention this. I'm trying to get into more uh, indie comics. I'm usually more of a big two kind of guy, but hearing about the synopsis of this book, there was no way I was going to pass it up. This is called this is from Image Comics, and our first piece, our first. Uh, comic for you to pick up this week is called The Good Asian. Now, this is written by Pornsock Pichet Schott. I, if I said that wrong, I apologize. Uh, uh, with art by Alexandre Tefenki. God. Ah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm trying. But um, this book seems really, really cool. Let's just go ahead and dive into the synopsis, then we'll talk about the book itself. Following Edison Hawk. Awesome. Following Edison Hark, a haunted, self-loathing Chinese-American detective on the trail of a killer in 1936 Chinatown, the good Asian is Chinatown Noir, starring the first generation of Americans to come of age under an immigration ban, the Chinese, as they're besieged by rampant murders, abusive police, and a world that seemingly never changes. So, I mean, come on. It's Detective Noir with Asian leads. What do you want from me? This sounds amazing. I'm very excited. The cover looks awesome. 
I'm not familiar with either of the creators involved, but I'm very excited to pick this up, and I will absolutely be talking about this book more once I've read it. Very excited about this. Next up, we have Crime Syndicate number three. This is written by uh, Andy Schmidt with art by Brian Hitch and Kieran McKeown. And this is um, just continuing on that great Crime Syndicate versus Starro uh, matchup that we've got going, as well as the backups featuring the origins of all the Crime Syndicate. This is three of six, so we're halfway through. Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. The New Deal, Part 3. With the Crime Syndicate's forces combined for the first time, seeds are sown to change the world forever. But before that can happen, Ultraman, Superior, Johnny Quick, Atomica, and Emerald Knight must survive a final battle with the biggest Starro of them all, and each other. Plus, Earth-3's Alexander Luthor makes his debut. Question of the month. On Earth 3, are Starro's friends or foes? And in the backup story, witness the origin of Superwoman. So it's interesting that they're like kind of playing fast and loose with whether they're calling her Superwoman or Superwoman or Superior. Either way, I think it works, um, but they definitely changed up Power Ring being Emerald Knight, so on and so forth, but I'm very excited about this book. The book's been really good so far. I've been uh, very interested in this. Again, I'm a sucker for the Crime Syndicate, so you've got me locked in on that for sure. Next up, we have Batman number 108. This is written by James Tynan IV with art by George Jimenez and Ricardo Lopez Ortiz. Um, this book has been very interesting. They're kind of trying to find a good balance between the status quo shifts that are going on in the Batman books. And this is going to feature the debut of Miracle Molly. I have no idea what her deal is, but this book is going to let me know. Uh, this also features a backup with uh, Ghostmaker, which is getting the, uh, the art by Ricardo Lopez Ortiz. So let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. The Cowardly Lot, Part 3, Slash Ghostmaker, Chapter 2. Batman goes undercover to infiltrate the transhumanist gang known as the Unsanity Collective and learn more about their sudden appearance in Gotham. And what nefarious plans does Simon Saint have for Arkham Day survivor Sean Mahoney? How does it connect to the Magistrate? And, in part two of the action-packed, bone-rattling Ghostmaker backup story, can our hero stand up to the horror of Kid Kawaii? Plus, don't miss the debut of the mysterious Miracle Molly. So yeah, this book is juggling a lot. This book has a lot of plates spinning, but I'm very interested to see how everything shakes out. Next up, we have Strange Academy number 10. This is written by Scotty Young with art by Umberto Ramos. And I just, man, just, Strange Academy's great. Like, Strange Academy's so good. If you aren't reading Strange Academy, you need to get on that right now. The book's been so good. I'm really enjoying this. This is giving me very much the same kind of vibe as Wolverine and the X-Men to, you know, call back to our X theme of the month. But I'm really digging it. And this one looks exciting because they're going to Asgard. Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. Field Trip. The students of Strange Academy are off on their first field trip. 
Hope everyone got their permission slips in. They're off to Alvi and Eric's home, Asgard, where you'll learn something truly shocking about these twins. Emily hasn't fully recovered from the events of Issue 6. Will she find something in Asgard to help her heal? So that's very interesting. This is, you know, I kind of figured that as a field trip issue, this would be a lot more just kind of a fun one and done. But they're pushing this forward. They're pushing a lot of the characters' arcs forward. And it's just, it's a great book. Tons of heart, really fun dynamics, and great characters. Next up, we have Green Lantern number two. This is written by Jeffrey Thorne with art by Dexter Soy and Marco Santucci. And I was really impressed with... Green Lantern number one. I really enjoyed it. I'm very, um, I'm still a little wary of where exactly they're planning on going with this book, but there is a, uh, there's a special Green Lantern debuting in this issue, so let's just go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. Death is a door. A guardian of the universe lies dead, and the universe teeters on the brink of war. As the summit of the United Planets and the Green Lantern Corps falls into chaos, an even bigger threat looms. With Jon Stewart reassigned to the role of an ambassador, a surprise appearance by one of the newest Green Lanterns may be all that stands between the Corps and Oblivion. Spoiler, it's Far Sector's Joe Moline. So, again, it's Joe. I'm getting Joe in two books. Um, for now. I mean, Far Sector only has one more issue left, so very quickly it's going to be one book again. But I'm just excited for Joe to be in the mainline books. You know I've been asking for this for a very long time. I hope she's treated well. I hope she's given the same reverence that N.K. Jemison and Jamal Campbell have given her in this book. But... Going off of how well the first issue went and how surprised I was that it went so well, I have high hopes for this for sure. Next up, we have Iron Fist, Heart of the Dragon, number five. This is written by Larry Hama with art by Dave Wachter. And this book's been great. It's been very interesting kind of diving into some more of the fantastical elements of Iron Fist, uh, with most of his stories being centered around more street-level stuff, especially in the last, you know, five, ten years. I enjoy kind of diving into the more mystical stuff. Kunlun, the other heavenly cities, dealing with now all of these hearts of the different dragons that guard those heavenly cities. I'm very, very much enjoying this. And for an Iron Fist book, you could not ask for more. So let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. Terror takes form. The Hierophant of the Eighth City rises. The dragons have fallen. What remains? Heaven itself is under siege, and only an Iron Fist can defend it. So yeah, really excited, looking forward to this book for sure. And next up, a one-two punch, as it were, we have Firepower number 11. I know, that was a bad joke. It's going to be a month of bad jokes. You just need to get over yourself and just be aware that that's what's going to be happening here. Uh, it's written by Robert Kirkman with art by Chris Somney and Matt Wilson. You know how much I love this book. And we are ramping up for a gigantic, a gigantic clash between both of the major players when it comes to the Firepower universe. Very much excited to see this, and I can't wait to dive in. Let's go ahead and go into the synopsis. Who can stop Chow Fang? 
yeah, pretty short and sweet to the <laughs> short, sweet to the point. I I adore this book. It's so good, um, and it's good to get you know a a double feature of kung fu action when it comes to firepower and Iron Fist before it. Very much looking forward to this. Next up, we have Marauders number twenty. This is written by Jerry Duggan with art by Stefano Caselli. And this is uh, getting us ready for the Hellfire Gala. This is the last um, Marauders issue before we're diving into the Hellfire Gala next month. I love this cover showing off the 80s costumes for Kate, Storm, and Nightcrawler. This is also kind of, at least the, the cover is teasing that maybe Storm might be leaving the Marauders. They've been hinting at that here and there in other X-Books, but we'll just have to see. Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. Eye of the Storm. As the preparations for the Hellfire Gala come to a head, Aurora's eyes are pointed to the future, a future that takes her off the seas and over the horizon. So, I don't know exactly where we're going to be taking Storm. I know that there are repercussions coming her way because of the choices that she made during Ten of Swords. I wonder if that's going to be included here, because we do know now, at least from the art releases from the past week, that Hellfire Gala isn't going to be just mutants. Avengers are showing up, the Fantastic Four is showing up. We've got some big players, some major political players as well coming to this. So every single week that passes, the Hellfire Gala seems to be bigger and bigger as an event. Very much excited to see what ends up shaking out with all this. Next up, we have Suicide Squad number three. This is written by Robbie Thompson with art by Eduardo Ponsica. And this is going to be basically picking up both from Suicide Squad issue two, as well as Teen Titans Academy issue two. Read Teen Titans Academy issue two if you haven't yet. But very interested to see what they do with this. Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. Need for Speed. Part 1. Task Force X finds a new target, and it leads the clandestine team right to Teen Titans Academy. The devious and driven Amanda Waller continues her quest to form a more powerful squad, and next on her list, the Titans' new speedster, Bolt. But when the mysterious Red X gets in the way, he becomes Waller's next target. Continued in Teen Titans Academy, number 3. So yeah, it looks like this is basically just like a what is it now, three-part crossover between uh, Suicide Squad and Teen Titans Academy. I've been enjoying both of these books, I'll be honest. I know Infinite Frontier has a lot of problems right out the gate, but I have been enjoying it. I'm looking forward to continuing in both of these stories. I'm very interested, again, in the Red, or the, the Red Hood, the Red X story alongside this, and this Suicide Squad is very quickly shaping up to be something special. And even more so once they inevitably add Bolt to the team. So this is going to be good stuff for sure. But the big book of the week, the book I think you should absolutely picking be picking up, turns our eyes back to Marvel with Heroes Reborn number one. This is written by Jason Aaron with art by Ed McGinnis, and I have been waiting for this. This is very... Um, 
there have been a lot of conversations about Heroes Reborn, the problems with it, the behind the, the even bigger behind the scenes problem with it. But it feels like this is genuinely going to be a good story, a good event uh, stretching across different tie-ins and stuff like that. So I'm very excited about this, and I'm looking forward to whatever wackiness is going to end up happening with this event. Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. Whatever happened to Earth's mightiest heroes? A world without Avengers. Welcome to a world where Tony Stark never built in Iron Man armor. Where Thor is a hard-drinking atheist who despises hammers. Where Wakanda is dismissed as a myth. And where Captain America was never found in the ice because there were no Avengers to find him. Instead, this world has always been protected by Earth's mightiest heroes, the Squadron Supreme of America. And now, the Squadron faces an attack from some of their fiercest enemies, like Dr. Juggernaut, the Black Skull, the Silver Witch, and Thanos with his Infinity Rings. But why is the Daywalker Blade the one man alive who seems to remember that the entire world has somehow been reborn so yeah lots of stuff to unpack um i there's so much going on with this but there's some stuff that i'm very excited about going into this event some of the tie-ins that are going to be coming out of this getting a star jammers book where it explores the uh possibility or the reality where um, Scott and his brother Alex were never separated from Corsair. We're getting a whole Hyperion book. I'm very excited to see where this goes, and I can't wait to pick this up. But that is going to wrap up this week's Comics Countdown. To recap, we have The Good Asian number 1, Crime Syndicate number 3, Batman number 108, Strange Academy number 10, Green Lantern number 2, Iron Fist Heart of the Dragon number 5, Firepower number 11, Marauders number 20, Suit Suicide Squad number three and Heroes Reborn number one. And that is going to bring us to the wrap-up. If this is your first time joining us on the Geeksplain podcast and you like what I do here, please feel free to subscribe on the podcasting platform of your choice and give us a rating and review. And tell a friend as well. We drop episodes every single Wednesday. And getting those subscriptions, ratings, reviews, you know, word of mouth really does help me out, really helps the podcast out, kind of raises our stock in the podcasting space and gets us out and into the ears of listeners just like you. Also, if you do drop us a five-star rating and review on Apple Apple Podcasts, iTunes, whatever you want to call it, I will read your review here live on the podcast. That's right. You can write whatever you want. As long as you give me that five stars, I will read it on here. You can join the likes of our Mighty Nine. I want to say a big thank you to Seafire ND, Matt Draper, Josh from Panels to Pixels, Burrito Man 88, Doug from For Every Kind of Geek, Don Swanson, Brian, Mouthdork, and Dallas Meeks for their reviews. And I cannot wait to hear yours. Also, if you want to be part of our Geeksplained mailbag, you can write emails to me. I do read them. If you have a uh, quick pitch for me, if you want me to do a quick pitch, if you have any questions, uh, if you want recommendations on something we haven't covered on the podcast yet, or if you want to do a request for a future episode, you can send emails to geeksplain at gmail.com. This week, we have a letter from our good friend, Brian Reel. Thank you very much, Brian, for writing in. His email says... 
Hi, Eric. Happy X May. Do 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 do. I was super excited when you announced you'd be doing an entire month worth of X Men related stuff on the podcast. The Hickman era brought me back into the X books after some time away, so it's great to be back following so many great books in such a unified and interesting way. Even better is when I get to hear others' thoughts on it and just Marvel's mutants in general. Agreed. Uh, he says, leading up to the release of Hawkspox, Marvel released their mini docu series regarding the X Men's seminal moments. There we saw giant sized X Men, the 90s era, Age of Apocalypse, Morrison's new X Men, and the future with, Hicksman, with Hickman's X Men all as the defining moments of X history, with the greatest impact on the line. Do you have any other big moments you would add to this list? Are yours pretty much similar? Is there one moment of X history that stands out to you for either personal reasons or belief of impact to the world of mutants that earns it a spot on the seminal moments. As always, thanks for taking the time to read my question. Hope you're staying healthy and safe. Can't wait for the rest of X May. Thank you very much, Brian, for writing in. Always a pleasure. And I have to agree. Um, I love talking about the X-Men. Uh, I said in the last X-related video or uh, X-related episode that I couldn't believe that I had so few X-Men episodes on the podcast and that pretty much spurred me to make this series. So I'm very excited that you are excited about X-May. We've got a ton of great conversations coming up. Uh, as for the Seminal Moments docuseries, so I went back and I rewatched this after getting your email and I was, I mean, if you look at it just on a basic scale those five moments you can look at as turning points for the x-men whether it's in universe in the continuity of the comic or in the real world and unfortunately there is one gigantic exclusion when it comes to the impact that it had when it when you want to talk about you know, pivotal moments that, you know, had the greatest impact on the line, something that I kind of clocked while re-watching this series, and really, I mean, watching it the first time in the lead up to Hoxpox as well, was these were, I mean, obviously all of them are the most important moments of the X-Men's comic continuity. However, I think, I believe the reason that Marvel put these all on here is because each of these moments, each of these um, focuses of all five parts were the starting point or the height of the X-Men doing really well when it comes to uh, sales. You know, giant-sized X-Men kicked off, you know, all of the amazing X-Men stories we would get in the Claremont run, the 90s era really was the height of X-Men hype. Age of Apocalypse was the culmination of all that. Morrison's new X-Men was the exact, you know, kind of palette cleanse that Hoxpox was. And Hickman's X-Men has reinvigorated the X-Men both in-universe as well as in the real world. And I can understand from that kind of marketing standpoint that they would only want really positive things. Um to be the seminal moments. However, I do believe that there was a glaring exclusion, and that is, of course, Decimation. You know, they made reference to it in different places, but they didn't give it its own dedicated uh, video, which I think was unfortunate, because House of M and the Decimation that followed, you know, Hoxpox has famously, like, put a panel in where it's considered the lost decade, because nothing of consequence really happened to the X-Men in, you know, the 2010s that wasn't, you know bad but 
the impact that decimation had not just on the line of comics but in universe as well that is as much of an impact you know impactful moment as giant sized x-men or morrison's new x-men you know did a very similar thing to morrison's new x-men when you know the massacre on genosha e for extinction happened uh, and we lost over 16 million mutants from genosha decimation continued to whittle that number down and even though it does get a bad rap and rightfully so that utopia era of x-men is a lot of people's first introductions to the characters and regardless of the quality of of the overall period of time, there were some really quality moments that happened in that era. And funnily enough, uh, with your question, we do have an episode coming up that is going to be tackling the uh, most important X-Men event, the most important X-Men, you know, comic events. So stay tuned for that. That is coming a little bit a little bit down the line from uh, from X May. So uh, again, like I said, the that decimation period is very much kind of like they call it. You know, the lost decade for a reason. It's where the X Men really lost their way. And again, I understand why they wouldn't include it because it's like, hey, this big thing happened, and then no one cared about the X Men. So um, I understand them not including it, but I do think it. It should be considered in that seminal moments grouping with the other uh, with the other five, and that includes Hickman's revitalization of the line for sure. But again, Brian, thank you so much for writing in. And again, if you want to write in to me, let me know your thoughts. Talk about your favorite X Men moment, your favorite X Men comic. Uh, feel free to write emails to geeksplained at gmail.com, put mailbag in the subject header, and I will read it here on the podcast. Also, I want to give another huge thank you to Owen Likes Comics for coming on to the podcast. Uh, Owen's amazing. He's a great creator. They're currently in the planning stages for this year's at home Comic Con. So make sure you tune in for that follow along with the development of that i'm very excited last year's event was amazing and owen overall is just a great great creator if you haven't yet go check out his videos go subscribe to his youtube channel uh one of his latest videos has been on the Morrison X-Men run. So if you want a comprehensive crash course on that era, you can't look for a better one than that. So definitely, definitely check that out. But that is going to do it for this week's episode, the first part of X-May. Stay tuned next week for part two, where we are going to be talking about something I've been wanting to talk about for a very long time, the X-Men animated series. Talking about some incredible episodes with a guest that I have been waiting to get onto this podcast. So stay tuned for that next week. Same geek time, same geek channel. But for now, for Geeksplain, this is Eric Azana. Thank you very much for listening. Wear a mask, stay safe, and we will see you next time.